Good day and welcome to the Climate Change Therapy Podcast, a product of BlockRadius.net, your most trusted online media outlet for urban planning and unrelated topics. Today is February 1st, 2020. I'm your host, Hank Felsman. Thank you for tuning in. Today, we've got a very special guest for you. His name is Alex Greer, a dear, dear friend of mine, also a very socially conscious individual, works in the business of human rights, is a public policy wonk, especially as it regards financial markets and practices, which have huge climate implications, of course. But before I bring out Alex, let's take a quick moment to show our dear appreciation to our sponsor, Hydratin, the dehydration pill that will keep you hydrated with just one capsule twice daily. No need to go out of your way to look for a water fountain or a vending machine or even a sink. Hydratin fits right in your pocket. Ask your doctor today about Hydratin. Side effects may include lightheadedness, dry throat, extreme thirst, and increased risk of fever and other illnesses. And as always, how could we forget to thank our sponsor, Rolling Cases, the most rocking suitcases on wheels, Rolling Cases. Whether you're traveling to Tottenham to watch the Spurs get sweet, sweet revenge on that vaunted Liverpool Reds squad, or you're flying to Fargo, North Dakota for a hot date with Francis McDormand, Rollin' Cases are the suitcases on wheels for you and your life's journey. Rollin' Cases. All right. As I alluded to at the top, we've got a great show for you today. A very special guest, Alex Greer. He is a philosopher of money. You could also say philosopher of human behavior, and I'm Sure, you would gather no objection from he. Uh, also very knowledgeable about public policy, as I said, finance and the English Premier League. Ladies and gentlemen, listeners old and new, I bring you Alex Greer. All right, Alex, welcome Hi. to uh, the pod, Climate Change Therapy. I've been, been trying to get you on for for a while. How are you doing? Yeah, I've got a busy schedule, but some uh, time cleared up. I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Love the studio. Uh, it's, it's great to, to finally have you here. Um, I just introduced you, uh, but do you want to take a moment to introduce yourself for our listeners? Fill in some blanks. Sure. Uh, I am a Capricorn. No, uh, professionally... You're not a Capricorn? I, I am a Capricorn. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have a business and accounting background. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've worked in nonprofits for a little while. Uh, currently, I work in uh, forecasting and financial planning and analysis for a nonprofit called Human Rights Watch. Mm-hmm. Accounting at a nonprofit is pretty easy, right? Because they say, well, what's, what's your profit this quarter? Did you say nothing? Sure. So, and then they ask, what are the losses? And you got to tell them <laughs> what it looks like. <laughs> no. Okay, go on. Sorry. That's the second question. Yeah. No, and, I, and that's that's mostly it. And, you know, my I, I focus on those things. I've got a, a alternate background in um, cooperative housing uh, and maybe cooperatives more broadly. Mm-hmm. Uh, a strong interest in um, you know economics and inequality. Yeah. Uh, and um, and a general knowledge, I think of the basics of capital markets, finance, and you know, national and international. A lay person's expertise. Mm-hmm. Yes. And how often do you talk about climate change in your everyday life? Uh, we can begin maybe at, at work, and then also in social settings. We're very curious. You know, it varies. You know, uh, at work, it's it's uh, it's occasional. 
Human Rights Watch recently added an, a new division called the Environment and Human Rights Division, which focuses on uh, abuse, human rights abuses against environmental defenders, hmm. the toxics, like toxics issues in human rights. Hmm. What, uh, what's an, an example of um, human rights violations that, um, that happened against a particular group of environmental well a big thing right now is there are a lot of indigenous climate activists in i mean all over the world okay. but one that's gotten some like standing uh, one, rock the, one the keystone standing rock one one, yeah. one community group of communities that have gotten a lot of attention lately are brazilian climate activists native activists wow. who've received a lot of backlash from the government from industry whatever you know and there's similar similar issues in parts of uh, western africa and elsewhere that have been documented mm-hmm. where oil companies are you know uh funding violence you know or uh or other campaigns against people who are trying to protest against mm-hmm. you know the extractive industries or things like that and so trying to document hmm. violations against those people um that's one part of the environmental group's work. Another part is the toxics industry, mm. uh, you know, um, things that poison people, basically. Wow. And then, uh, and then climate change and the intersection of human rights and uh, climate change. So, mm-hmm. um, so the, you know, there's a lot of different things that yeah. come up at work, so but quite, certainly quite climate bit. issues are something that people talk about a lot. And a big reason why the division exists is because there was so much interest in the subject among the staff at the organization. There was a lot of lobbying for it. Yeah. Huh. Mm-hmm. So are, do these conversations ever carry over into social settings amongst friends? Do you talk outside the workplace? Um, do you talk about climate change with people? Well, more commonly than any other situation, I, I talk about climate change with some regularity with my partner, who's an environmental scientist. Mm-hmm. You know, she is... Uh, she, she does field work professionally and work around New York city. And so, you know, we have occasion to talk about Mm. climate change from a political and personal standpoint, um, as well as from a professional standpoint, you know, uh, recently in the headlines, there's been, um, talk about the U S executive branch trying to change the definition of waters of the United States Mm -hmm. as it applies to ephemeral wetlands basically during some seasons or during some weather patterns, different water bodies are connected by rivulets and streams and things like that. And some of those connections are, you know, irregular, but vital to the environment in the area. Hmm. Uh, That's something that, you know, my partner works, uh, works on uh, Hmm. in terms of her field work. And so, um, you know, that rollback and change in definition is something that she feels from a personal standpoint as a professional, you know, and as someone who cares about that stuff, yeah. you know, I think we get her on climate change therapy. Uh, it, it maybe. I, I think it's probably unlikely, but I could try to represent some of her perspectives, maybe with some convincing. Do you get a sense talking to her that the water in America is getting cleaner or dirtier? Uh, I think that's probably not the way in which she would think about it. You know, I don't think she would think about it as cleaner or dirtier. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I, I think it has to do with what are the different water issues that are out there? Mm-hmm. How much attention are they getting? How much funding are they receiving? Mm-hmm. You know, New York City, for example, is 
extremely non-compliant with a lot of environmental regulations. Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough to push a giant city like that to, to comply. That has effects on the Hudson, mm -hmm. uh, for example. But the Hudson is a lot cleaner than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Within the past couple of years, they've had their first, you know, humpback whale sightings in years up the Hudson. Excuse me. Humpback whales go to look for whale food. In the Hudson? Up or the Hudson River. Up the Hudson. Is that a... In the mouth. Is that a... Is that a good thing? Like, is, is the reason for that because the Hudson River is getting cleaned up or is the reason for that because the oceans are getting dirty? <laughs> <laughs> That's an excellent question. What, uh, what, we're, what, what we are led to believe is that yeah. humpback whales go looking for food. Uh -huh. The food that humpback whales want to eat is only going to be in places where it can survive, especially in such volume that a humpback yeah. whale wants to hunt it but up you, there. But you would hope that a humpback whale would be able to find ample food in the ocean. Sure, sure, sure. But a lot of people don't know humpback whales and dolphins hang out around the New Jersey shore, Long Island, you know, off the coast of Brooklyn and Queens. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that some of the things they might want to chase are going up the Hudson means that the Hudson must be a little bit cleaner than it was before. Mm -hmm. That said, if it had rained recently and Allie found out that somebody had gone swimming in the Hudson, she'd probably gag because due to... Uh, sewage runoff the way that the pipes overflow right. when there's a rain event mm -hmm. and outflow into right. the the water uh, around new york city you know she would think it's pretty gross for someone to go swimming there right. uh, after a rainfall because the system can't handle the water flow and the city keeps on growing so mm -hmm. i think i think rather than saying are the waters getting cleaner or dirtier on the one hand they're getting clean enough for humpback whales to want to go up the Hudson River. That's pretty remarkable. But on the other hand, the city is changing and maybe there isn't enough investment in the water quality that's needed and the different approaches to keeping everything safe. Oh, but I'm sorry. When you say humpback whales going up the Hudson River, is this... I don't mean is this with, is this, is it, is it, is this with regularity? Or was this just like a one-time thing, like a humpback whale was spotted... Or is it like every day that you could see like a humpback whale uh, coming up for air? Uh, you can see humpback whales and dolphins with some regularity during certain seasons yeah. it, off the coast of Jersey and Long Island and elsewhere. But I think they sighted humpback whales a couple times for the first time in a long time up the Hudson. Fun fact about humpback whales and human beings, we have a common ancestor. What is it? It's a shrew. Really? It's like a it's like a mouse like rodent thing. Yeah, if you like go to the Natural History Museum or something like that or the Wikipedia uh, website, um, you can see that when the dinosaurs were killed off, there were a few mammals that survived, kind of, and it was sort of like like m mouse type like mammals, and whales being mammals are descendants of this mouse like critter, and so are we. Absolutely. It's cool. It's very cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Um, that uh, I could digress, but I want to go to, we um, exchanged a few articles. I had you send me a few so we can focus the conversation because I understand we can we can go in a lot of different directions here and maybe That's we will towards true. the end. But I'm going to get back to, I mean, a lot of our guests don't necessarily focus on climate change at work or they don't work for organizations that have divisions d dedicated to um, 
climate change issues. But at Human Rights Watch, you sent me an article about Turkana County in Kenya that was uh, written by someone at the Human Rights Watch, posted to hrw.org. Um, the article, uh, it's called, uh, There is no time left, climate change, environmental threats, and human rights in Turkana County, Kenya. It's a, a long paper, really report, but we read that the summary kind of serves as an article um, which which we both read. Uh, do you want to summarize this uh, for our listeners? Sure. Yeah, this is a report written by Katarina Rawl, one of our environment researchers. Um, and, you know, Human Rights Watch conducts in-depth r- reporting on human rights abuses, you know, uh, and makes recommendations for advocacy. So it's investigate, expose, you know, drive change, et cetera. And so mm-hmm. this is the one of the first major climate change focused reports that the organization had done. Katharina did a great job. Um, it's something that I hear about in my financial role, yeah. you know, a little bit about what everyone does. Um, she went to this part of Kenya where there's, you know, uh, Lake Turkana, which um, there's a community of people who've lived around there for, for ages mm-hmm. and, and this is the really the mecca of civilization absolutely it's the cradle of life you know mm-hmm. it's the horn of africa it's you know cradle near the nile near you know serengeti the, the tigris and the euphrates are just a little farther north of that you mm-hmm. know um so people live there forever it's a desert but people have made a life you know going out getting water during the drier seasons when it's there's more water, they live on a lake. There's fishing to be done at the lake elsewhere. Right. But over time, there's been less and less and less water available, where people are walking miles for water and not finding it, and having to like dig pits deeper to find water and not be able to bring back as much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the normal cycle of this sensitive community is disrupted by climate change and their access to water. And then there's further pressures on their communities trying to modernize mm-hmm. in Kenya in they're trying to develop industry and you know, agriculture and some other industries are water intensive. And so they're siphoning off the already sparse and dwindling water supply from these people into those industries. And furthermore, the water that feeds that lake comes from Ethiopia mm-hmm. and Ethiopia on the other side of the border is trying to harness its own industry, building a dam yeah, to get electricity and, and do other things. And so it's an international water challenge that's dramatically exacerbated by climate change. The already scarce water is made even more scarce. Mm-hmm. And these people are, you know, the vanguard of the sensitive. And yeah. it's, it's these things that, you know, when the U S military is worried about the effects of climate change. They worry about disruption of people's livelihoods, Mm -hmm. people migrating. Yeah. And multinational collaboration. This is a, this is a case where Lake Turkana is the largest desert lake in the world. Yeah. And it gets 90% of its water from the, um, Omo river basin in Ethiopia. Exactly. Um, I'm reading off, off the article uh, right here. And because of the, the irrigation projects alone, they said it, 
that could um, reduce up to 50% of the river flow, um, just di- diverting the water from the river for agricultural purposes because of the, the, the enormously, the growing population in Africa. The population in Africa is expected to skyrocket. Catapult, absolutely. Generation. Um, as, uh, you know, as, and, and, as healthcare improves, et cetera. And, so. and we talk in the West about, you know, degrees and international climate accords and things like that. But I think this is an, this is an easily digestible. The summary of this report is relatively modest, uh, and it's easy to get through. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting, um, concrete specific example of how a local community is severely and adversely impacted that has both local elements, mm-hmm. national elements, international local international elements and, you know, meta international in terms of overall climate change. And I think it's an interesting case, albeit a, uh, an unfortunate one Mm -hmm. in which you can see the, all these different elements and competing interests, uh, manifesting to disadvantage these people and make it difficult for them to get water and yeah. their and sustenance and their livelihood. And I think it's a really useful case study as well because um, you know you know rivers get diverted everywhere for agricultural purposes, but a big reason of why the rivers here are getting um, diverted it's not just economic development pressure, but it, it's also just existing water scarcity because of global warming that has already occurred in this area so i'll just read a sentence from this article that just says while global mean temperatures are estimated to have increased by 0.8 degrees celsius or 1.5 degrees fahrenheit in the past century in turkana county minimum and maximum air temperatures have increased by between two and three degrees celsius or three and a half and five and a half degrees fahrenheit uh, just between 1967 and and 2012 so like we are talking about what's the world like two degrees warmer. This county has already experienced a, the two degree raise and it's led to um, like much longer rainy season or shorter rainy seasons. Mm-hmm. And so less predictable weather and, and, um, and hotter summers, more drought. So climate predictability allows us to plan ahead according to, the seasons and the cycles of, of agriculture, the harvest seasons. So when you have um, even just two degrees, three degrees, um, which is really five degrees Fahrenheit as, as we, as we know it, um, that really throws things off. That makes things become more, more volatile. Um, and because of that, uh, they're trying to exert more control over a more volatile climate. And that control is exerted by diverting the water from the river that feeds into the lake and all that. So, I mean, you know, this article came out at the, the report was published in 2015. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it was, there maybe weren't so many examples closer to home of how climate change might have an effect, you know, over the past couple months, the fires in Australia are certainly like a wake up for the first world. You know, and, mm-hmm. you know, it was 50 years ago that Chinatown came out, the movie, and yeah. they're talking about the water in L.A. Yeah. 50 years ago. Right. What's going to happen to Southern California? They already have fires in California. The water scarcity is going to be an issue there. Is it going to be at all like Turkana 
Mm-hmm. What about other parts of the states? What about other deserts elsewhere in the world and places that are maybe a little more sensitive? This is a canary, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the interesting components of it is that there's not necessarily a bad guy exactly, right? Right. There's pressure on these African countries, even from a human rights perspective, to develop. You know, there's an idea called yeah. progressive realization. You want to show progressive realization of rights over time. Healthcare is improving, right. education is improving, and that takes, you know, economic growth. Absolutely. And so, of course, you want to develop industries yeah. in your own country. Ethiopia faces the same pressures. You know, maybe there's corruption in the country. Maybe they're making some decisions that are poor, but at the same time, they're trying to, you know, benefit their people. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's collateral damage and climate change makes that collateral damage much more substantial to the most sensitive people. Um, And so how do we navigate a world where we've created a situation where there's this kind of sensitivity Mm -hmm. because of climate change? And how do we balance everyone's hopefully positive interests that are circumstantially causing significant harms? You know, it's a really big challenge. Yeah, no, we're going to have to definitely be a lot more careful, careful with how we um, ration our water use, which is which is a scary thought. The water is a basic human right. You you know more than anyone, but there's some agricultural practices that's a lot more water intensive than others. Um, we well, water intensive foods like I like almonds. Almonds yeah. take a lot of water to eat. Do I need almonds as much as you know, I want to eat them, but maybe I don't. If water scarcity is a problem, you know, I can downshift. I can move on to, I don't know, mm-hmm. sunflower seeds or something. We, we read a couple, we have a segment on this podcast called Climate Change Fact and React where mm. we read some facts and we react to it. But um, just we on a few episodes ago, we talked about how it takes 45 gallons of water to make one glass of orange juice. Mm-hmm takes over 12,000 gallons of water to produce one pound of beef. This is in the USA. Yeah. Um, so it's just water is, it's used for so much. Water is, it's used for energy, for electricity. Mm-hmm. You need water to, we need it for everything. And there's really not that much. And especially as with, with sea level rise, there, there could be a, a water supply. The groundwater can be um, salinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, well, so, you know, that's some issues. Going that's on. something that, you know, we, we were talking a little bit about some videos that I had watched on the PBS news hour, looking at different communities along the Mississippi and how they've been affected by climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, one of exactly very similar to the salination issue from flooding is in Missouri. They highlighted a specific area where there's a coal ash plant close to the Mississippi river. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of worry that the Mississippi river floods in the same way when there were floods, I think over the summer in the States in Nebraska and in Iowa and elsewhere, that flooding could be substantial enough to flood, you know, this coal, this coal ash plant. Mm -hmm. And there would be, uh, toxic leaching into the local water supply from the coal ash plant. Right. I mean, so it's not you have on the one hand ocean water possibly, you know, uh, making the water table 
in coastal areas unusable then you have industry often is located near water supplies because they need it for you know the work that they do what happens if the byproduct is toxic and that leaks out you know there's a there's a well-known um super fun site called love canal Mm -hmm. uh i think i think in ohio i can't remember exactly where that is maybe you have it on the internet but that had some there was like their toxics got into the water table and P and there's been a lot of reporting on, you know, cancer in the local neighborhood from, you know, that leaching out into the water supply, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not a hurricane, yeah. but like that's a byproduct of climate change. You know, water is a really sensitive, mm-hmm. sensitive issue and I drink it all day. You know, that's going to get me, you know? Yeah. I, I, I often think about, well, like I want just to get back to this article, there was something sure. that I wanted to, um, touch on so to so um, because of the droughts and the difficult access to potable water um, you know this article is saying w- women and girls are often walking extremely long distances to dig for water in dry yeah. river, riverbeds yeah not not wells they don't not sinks obviously um, they're digging for for water um, I guess they would would they boil this water or they're going to just going to drink it as it is? I mean, who knows? Do they who knows? Can. I mean, they got to use it for, for eating and drinking. They got to use it for washing. Right. They use it for all sorts of different things. But it, it's because of that in a way it's like re, it's resourcefulness that a lot of people say that you know, if a climate, climate change happens, it's like the, the poor are, are going to suffer the most. I think that yes, the poor, but the poor are already like, and it's like suffering the, the most now. So like, that's sort of an obvious thing to say, but in a way the poor also have like this resourcefulness that I don't think a lot of people in the U S have that if there were some climate apocalypse, like the, those villagers of Turkana County, like they would find ways they know how to get food from nature in ways that we're like relying on supermarkets. And like, like if, if I had to go find water just like in the street, and food i'd I'd be i'd be fucked but that's the thing they they over the course of their people's history have learned these approaches to surviving in this harsh climate you know uh and they're sensitive you know Mm -hmm. like if we push them past this sensitive you know uh skills that they've acquired through generations to survive there if, if that doesn't work anymore maybe there is nothing else there they live in a desert you know and i live in a city and mm-hmm. i wouldn't be able to do that you know they're able to survive and yet they're still being pushed farther into the fringes right you know yeah i mean and and I guess the, you know, it is an American issue though, believe it or not. Uh, Lyndon Johnson. Yeah. One of the reasons why he apparently got into politics is that he's from a small Texas town where people had to like grandmothers were known to be walking out to the well in the Texas desert to like with a yoke and filling up pails and bringing it back today, like old strong women. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm going to bring modernity to my hometown. I'm going to bring electricity to these people. And uh, Robert Caro has written uh, a lot of 
like some, mm. some moving and very interesting, um, you know, explorations of that in his writing about Lyndon Johnson. Mm. But it's, you know, it's not just it's it, these people who are sensitive to these issues. It's not just in Africa. There's water sensitivity in Canada. There's water sensitivity in the U.S., you know, in urban, rural, native communities. Right. It's a local issue, too. Yeah, and, and mon- modernity is really a, it's it's a double-edged sword, and you have to be, you can't just say, is it good or bad? Um, in the case of Kenya, in, in uh, the, the, the women walking miles Jarkana, to dig yeah. for, uh, for water in, in the riverbeds, would modernity in the form of plumbing help be helpful absolutely however modernity in the form of say you know the 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 water scarcity is due to diverting the rivers for irrigation on farm for agricultural purposes what about pesticides now you have a storm and you have agriculture runoff going into the the groundwater um and now when you go to dig for the water now the water is polluted so modernity the same that same uh, modernity that can bring you indoor plumbing also brings you pesticides. So yeah, how I we mean, plan in how Kenya plans uh, and Ethi- with Ethiopia for this transition into this this kind of um, from from an agricultural economy to a kind of a, more, a modern goods economy or services economy um, is really. I mean, it's it's really important. They can't make the same mistakes that we made in the 1950s. I mean, to your point, it's not for nothing that, you know, Flint has gotten the most attention for the lead pipes issue, but there's lead pipes in Ohio. There's lead pipes in our backyards in Newark. Yeah, when I signed grew up, my lease here, I had to sign a lead pipe. Yeah, it's not yeah. just Flint. that We have Addendum. lead pipes all over the place. Lead pipes are a modern thing right yeah. i don't have to go dig a ditch miles away for water but yeah. we're bringing you know if we're not careful we're bringing the poison into our taps you know yeah and a lot of these um things that we now see as toxins or toxin cancer carcinogen cancer carcinogenic yeah um that we didn't, obviously didn't know at the times like pesticides were a thing that allowed asbestos. you to grow more food there's asbestos in our high school asbestos in our high school led but and it gets me thinking: What are we doing now that we're going to find out in thirty years? Because you can never know the long-term effects of a new product with precision. Um, so, but in thirty years, like we might, we might know that there's a long-term effect of carrying a cell phone that gets radio waves or you know uh, digital waves, whatever it is, um, from outer space into your on your hip. Like we, there might be, there might be uh, having all these radioactive radioactivity in your pocket could well, have an effect. Headphones, people like blasting th- things into their brain. Well, noise certainly noise into your brain. Headphones is not Waves. helping people with you know growing up to become deaf later in life. You know, sunglasses, things like that. One We've of the only best been wearing can... headphones for about twenty five years. Sure, like, like sure, in... sure, sure. Although we on a mask boom boxes and things like that have been around too, but, the, for but at high least decibels. even boom boxes they they were loud, but but diffuse, headphones are right into your diffuse, ear. Yeah. They're right directly into your brain. I'm personally not so worried about or cell phones, yeah. just from you know talking to friends of mine who are physicists. And, yeah, sure, maybe and not like cell phones, but, but things like I think that. a great example of what you're talking about is there was a movie that came out recently called Dark Water with Mark Ruffalo. 
which I need to see that. Yeah. But it, it, it's covering an issue that was profiled in the New York Times magazine a couple of years ago on an issue with DuPont who manufactured things that have Teflon in it. Teflon, mm-hmm. who doesn't have a pan with that, Teflon coating that, nonstick? That's, that's scratched. Trying too. to make, yeah. trying to, trying to cook eggs. I don't want it to stick to the pan. Teflon yeah. is brilliant, right? Yeah. But there's a chemical called PFAS, PFAS, a group of chemicals that are unbelievably toxic. You know, this New York Times Magazine article talked about farmers yeah. showing environmental lawyer, a guy who used to work for DuPont or his firm used to work for DuPont. And then he switched to the other side in this public interest lawsuit. Talked about cows in this guy's farm that were basically rotting alive from PFAS getting into the water that they were around and drinking. How did PFAS get into the water? It was near uh, a DuPont manufacturing plant. Oh, okay. And they were making things like Teflon and other stuff. It's a chemical that the company knew was poisonous. And suppress it. Mm. They knew to the degree that when the lawyer subpoenaed the company for the for the data, they were like, "You're never gonna, you're never gonna." Like they didn't, they didn't think that there was any possible possibility of backlash. They just gave him all the documents, tro- piles of documents, being like, "Good luck with that." It had every study that they had done showing that it was poisonous. The chemical is mm. not banned. Or it was only just recently banned. They've known for decades, yeah. right? And that's a thing that people, you know, it's that's modern. We're just finding out that it's toxic. You know, they used to use DDT mm-hmm. and all, then they realized that it was killing everything, right? right. right. I think there's probably going to be a lot of examples. For me personally, I'm very, very, I, I think that the pesticide and, and toxics industry, chemicals industry is very overlooked. I think that's a huge environmental issue. Mm-hmm. I think that, it's not necessarily explicitly connected to something like climate change. Mm-hmm. But then when you get worried about flooding and yeah. runoff and the water table and things like that, right. it can become a significant issue. And I think it becomes yeah. a significant issue with respect to something like inequality as well. The people yeah. who are most affected by this are people who can't move. And they've got this poisoned water and they can't go anywhere. And it's not it. that there's poisoned water and we're, we're now we're unable to drink it. That's not the case, but it is the case that there's, poison water and then all the fish get die and get sick or that the the birds get sick and die and then um economies that rely on on fish uh yeah or there's enough problems. there's enough there's a small enough amount of you can't chemical. swim think about the the at the bottom of the mississippi which you had brought up um have you ever been in the gulf of mexico uh, off the coast when i was 16 i went to the to um gulfport mississippi and they have the long beach Staring out into what look on the map looks like the Caribbean. Of I'm course, all, I'm all excited. I don't know crystal what I'm talking water. about. It's Sixteen crystal water. There's no one on the beach. And I was like, what, "What's going? on? This is summer. It's like July." Yeah. No one on the beach. You're like, oh yeah, you can't swim in the Gulf. Can't swim in the Gulf. Just can't swim there because it's at the bottom of the, the Mississippi. All the runoff has gone there and formed a huge dead zone. Oh yeah. That just has no oxygen. Well, it's, just, it's like an enormous algae bloom. I'm, I might have this, the science mixed up, but you can't swim in there. That's the bottom line. And I think even in cases where you could swim in it, right? Maybe there's just enough of this toxic that the that the thing that the fish eats doesn't die, right? But the fish eats it, and the fish eats a bunch of them, and all of a sudden the right, fish exactly. has it in it. And maybe the fish is fine, but then all of a sudden you eat a couple fish, 
Yeah. Or a bird eats a couple of the yep. of the fish and the bird dies or, or you are ingesting these fish your whole life and slowly building up carcinogens in your body. You know, who do you go after for something yeah. like that? How can you pin that to a particular person? But it's some the companies that company know like DuPont leaking yeah. it out over time. Oh no, it's behind, it's below the, well, they can regulate themselves. Well, the way it happens is, well, there'll be some kind of beetle or something that's invasive and it's, hurting the elm trees or something and there's a big uh so this pesticide targets specifically the beetle and that's fine and it's like oh there's this new technology it's a poison that doesn't even affect the birds the birds will be fine it just affects the beetle well you know what like the the bird eats the beetle exactly yeah so it's like or what happens when climate change causes sea level rise and everything that was in that dead zone is all of a sudden flooding a Mississippi community, right? Mm-hmm. You've got a hurricane that comes through and everything that you left dead in the bottom of the river is all of a sudden flooding into your basement, yeah. right? Into your garden, into the place where your children play. We've been a nerd to this. Like like Mississippi, they are, they're usually a red state. They're not you know, climate change, you know, headstrong. They are looking at the Caribbean and they can't swim in it. And this isn't the number one issue for them. Like Absolutely. It's, it's kind of like that's how we've become inert. There are people in Mississippi that are just like used to it. Well, something that's received a lot of attention is you know, this is a really controversial issue in Louisiana, mm-hmm. which, is an ext- which is a relatively conservative state. Yeah. You can't say climate change in the Louisi- state government Louisiana, documents. New Orleans is, I think, one of the... Louisiana's ports are one of the major locuses of economic activity in the States. And yet, right, Louisiana is at at the bottom, among the, the bottom in all of the important metrics of success, like education, standard of living, things like that. The Louisiana state spends a lot of tax money providing, giving companies tax benefits to... to you know, to, to do business there, even if they're already there. Right. And it's a lot of oil and gas and, right. uh, and shipments and stuff. Yes. And so you have this conflict, right. Where the people who live there see the environmental effects of what's going on in their backyard, right there at the Mississippi Delta, mm-hmm. they see everything coming down the river. they the barrier islands of Louisiana around new Orleans are literally disappearing due to sea level rise right now. Mm-hmm. They see, they see the, we talk about Miami right. in Louisiana. It's disappearing right now. Like the yeah. Maldives are disappearing. New Orleans Maldives. is below sea level. Yeah. So, so, uh, so on the one hand, they're like, there's flooding, there's poison, there's all this stuff going on. And, you know, our education is suffering. Our industry is suffering, et cetera. You know, um, yeah. climate change causing the shipping routes to change. And so it's making it more difficult for people to deliver goods because of the flooding mm-hmm. into Louisiana. But at the same time, their economy is dependent upon these industries. Right. And these people aren't going to have jobs if those companies leave. Right? right. You can't swim in the gold, but you can rig for oil. And so all and these that's what people, they do. You know, maybe an individual isn't necessarily conflicted because they've got a job or they're being poisoned. But yeah. But their communities are in conflict with these competing issues that right. they that they feel and are sympathetic to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So and it puts pop politicians in this in this spot, like where 
you know, everybody's is, uh, they work in the fossil fuel industry or they, or their brother does, or they know somebody who does. Yeah. Um, and then, um, I don't know. I, I still feel personally like as a politician, you got to have some balls. And I want to talk about at some point BlackRock mm-hmm. choosing to, um, starting to invest in, um, in more environmentally sustainable companies, um, and kind of taking, uh, taking that step, but also politicians have to say and, and tell their, um, industries in state like Louisiana start putting in mechanisms to direct them to the, um, the, um, industries of the, of the future that, that, you know, investment companies like BlackRock are now pointing towards. So maybe, um, maybe this, and then that people won't lose their jobs who are working fossil fuels, but they'll have new jobs in more sustainable uh, energy uh, generation activities. Cause there's tons of jobs to be created um, with, with transitioning to, to renewables. Well, one of the things that we had talked about a little bit was uh, the influence of economics on politics, mm-hmm. you know, over the last 70 years or so, maybe even a hundred years, yeah. you know, economists didn't used to be so involved in politics. Mm-hmm. People used to say those economists, they don't know what they're talking about. Maybe they know about economics, but like they don't know about governing. Yeah. And somewhere 50, 60, 70 years ago, they started to get more of a seat at the table. And now the U S is run with economics as the bottom line. Right. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. GDP maximization, Right. right and the uh, and the world the world really that way absolutely but so there's a there's there are a lot of important differences between economic maximization and being an effective governor of a country mm-hmm. one important difference is maybe it's a little bit more economically inefficient but for as a as a governor you want to be able to smooth transitions for mm-hmm. communities and for individuals if a person, the reason why, you know, an economist wouldn't necessarily say there should be any public support for unemployment or something like that, because, you know, the person will just like, why spend money on that? Let that person buy their own unemployment insurance or something like that. Why would Mm -hmm. the public necessarily support that? Right. If there's public support for unemployment, it'll make it uh, a more... A, a lifestyle that people won't try to avoid as heavily or something. Sure. I mean, that's the idea. And I think that's maybe that's economics 101. I don't think that's necessarily economics, you know, 201, 401, 201. <laughs> right, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but I think that's the perspective that a lot, no, yeah. but I think a lot of people have that perspective, but it's not just about economics. Yeah. If you're a politician, part of your job is to smooth out those transitions. And so for an individual, yeah. let's make it so that, when some people inevitably lose their job, let's make it not so painful for them because who knows who it's going to be. Similarly, if an industry needs to be changed or cycled out because of environmental effects, climate effects, something else, there's entire towns, cities, states, you know, that depend heavily on things that are adverse to the climate, you know, uh, Texas is a lot of oil. West Virginia is a lot of coal. Mm-hmm. What happens to that community when we cycle off? 
It's the government's responsibility from a governing perspective, not from an economic perspective, but from a governing perspective to support those communities through their transition to something else. And the economic perspective of maximize, 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 maximizes at the uh, expense of smoothing out those transitions. Mm -hmm. Would you rather make an extra, you know, thousand dollars, but if things go wrong, you've got maximum pain, or would you rather make a couple thousand dollars less, but if things go horribly wrong for you or your neighbor or someone you don't even know, they're going to have the support they need. I think that's a political question and not an economic question. And I think that that's really important for, for, for figuring out how to respond to climate change. You know, if, if you work in coal, you're never going, you're going to have a really hard time getting on board with climate change without, with climate change mitigation, Mm -hmm. unless you have some degree of support. Yeah. I, I, I guess I, I wish that, you don't, it doesn't have to be that you work in coal. It should just be you work in energy. And the same way, this is a analogy out of left field, but in the same way that the iPhone 4 becomes the iPhone 5, becomes the iPhone 6, etc. Maybe if you work in energy, you work in coal, and then you can work in natural gas, and then you can work in solar and wind. Um, Texas is actually, they have a ton of windmills. Like almost probably more than any state, I would say. I'm just looking at the map, not the numbers. But if you, if you look at a map of all the, the windmills in the country, a lot of them are right, right down the pipe in Texas. And I think it's easy to look at a situation like that and say, okay, Texas is transitioning, right? And maybe Texas is transitioning. But for individual people, like maybe they work for, maybe they work for a company that does both wind and oil Mm -hmm. maybe they work for a company that only does oil or maybe they work for a company does both but they don't work for that company they're a consultant for that company and they're a consultant just for the oil business or maybe they're the secretary for the consulting company that consults on just the oil stuff right Mm -hmm. how are the how's that person transitioning into wind texas might be transitioning into wind but that individual is maybe having a more difficult time doing that and so you know managing those transitions not managing that makes it so that that person says well if we change over change out of oil i'm going to lose my job i've got kids i've got a family i've got a mortgage mm-hmm. i've got student debt you know so I, th- I think um earlier you started talking about economists and government and i want to kind of get back to that and focus focus on that because i think that has big implications for how we address climate change moving forward but uh, the second article that we exchanged um, this week was an opinion piece uh, by Benjamin Applebaum in the New York Times. Um, blame economists for the mess we're in. Why did America listen to the people who thought we needed, quote, more millionaires and more bankrupts? Uh, so you want to take a moment and summarize this article for our listeners, and that might uh, kind of help you, me, and whoever's listening out there to kind of get on the same page in, in where this conversation is. Right sure. Now. I think, you know, like, like I said earlier, the political thought maybe like 80 years ago was that you know, economists are good when you have economic questions, but you don't necessarily want them in charge because mm-hmm. they don't know how to think about what people need. They know how to think about maximizing GDP or something like that. Right. And right. so, uh, but over time, 
you know, they got more and more influence. I think most the, the, the marquee names in modern economics are John Maynard Keynes and one person who was really important in this transition, Milton Friedman. Uh-huh. Um, and over time, economists were put more and more in decision-making positions rather than advisorship positions. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, ideas in economics about efficiency, efficiency purism, right, uh, mm-hmm. became the lay of the land. Uh, With it, which is... The just just to summarize for our listeners, uh, Keynes uh, saying that in 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 times of to stimulate the economy, the government can spend money and, uh, on projects that would have a multiplier effect in terms of increased uh, jobs and wages, and then um, spending money and sales taxes, and it, you stimulate the economy by increasing the deficit, increasing government. Spending. And then Milton Friedman kind of said government should you know, get the hell out of the way. That's kind of a simplification. I know, right. You yeah, say? I think nowadays people kind of feel like there's truth in what both of them said. You know, right. I think it's a little technocratic Milton Friedman's like key observation, which is that the money supply is what has a an important effect, the most important effect on, you know, you when you're in a recession, you want to increase the money supply. When the government spends money, prints and then spends money, they're they're adding more money into the economy, and so it increases the money supply. Um, and and so like a Keynesian stimulus package can have that money supply effect. Uh, mm, right. Okay. But you know, Milton Friedman. What does it mean to increase the money supply without ha- government spending? Uh, so rather than doing it through a government program, you might have the federal reserve print okay. more dollars and loans, know, more buy, loans. Yeah. Essentially make more money available to lower uh, the banks. Rates. Essentially. Yeah. Lower interest rates means that you can lend out more money. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, the interest rates essentially it means, and it means plus taking per, out loans more attractive. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's some other, like maybe more technical and more complicated things that the federal reserve does, but essentially they try to keep their finger on the their their fingers on the little dial that says how much money is in the American economy. Do we right. need to stimulate? Let's put more money in there. Do we need to mm-hmm. pull things back? Let's take some dollars out. And and I mean the after the financial crisis, there are some big words from people like Ben Bernanke and folks like that who really figured all of that stuff out. Who said, mm-hmm. you know, I think based on what we did, Milton Friedman was probably right, mm-hmm. right? But but. Um, but those ideas aren't necessarily in competition with each other, right? Uh, because mm-hmm. Milton Friedman, well, I guess maybe to your point, one of the big differences, Milton Friedman says, you don't need to redistribute money anywhere. There's no, there's no need for that. Uh, right. It'll just, it'll, the economy is what's important. But John Maynard Keynes talked about the idea of like the velocity of money and how many times a dollar gets spent and how that has a multiplying effect on the economy. Right. And, that from an ideological point of view is maybe a little bit more sympathetic to the idea of get money in the common person's hands, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, But I think, and so even if it isn't necessarily an economic purism, I think the idea that we should do whatever the economic orthodoxy is because the economic orthodoxy is what our goal should be is part of the issue. It's that we're not, doing an economic simulation, we're living life. And just because the GDP might be okay on aggregate doesn't necessarily mean that individual people's lives are okay. Uh, and so 
is it worth sacrificing a little bit of economic inefficiency so that when somebody, you know, gets a horrible medical illness, they don't have to go bankrupt. Mm-hmm. Would I rather a little bit of GDP inefficiency for that? I would. That's not economics. That's government, right? And I think that's essentially the main idea of the article and the book that Benjamin Applebaum wrote. It's that these are the effects of making the economists the decision makers instead mm-hmm. of people who can balance economic priorities alongside other maybe more human priorities. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, because even though the the GDP of a, the country went up, most of that increased wealth is occurring just in, in the top 1%. Um, in fact, like you still have today, just to talk about some inequality, a quarter of American workers make less than $10 an hour. That creates an income below the federal poverty level. Um, so that's that pretty stark. That's pretty stark. You know, and the top uh, top ten percent took home fifty percent of all the income. Um, the top one percent took home twenty percent of the income. And you know, if if everyone is getting their basic needs met, maybe inequality isn't an issue. You know, I might think it's an issue, or some other people might think it's an issue, but maybe it's not an issue. Fine, but the reality is there's a lot of people who aren't getting their needs met Mm -hmm. and you have this inequality. So there's some issues there and there's a bunch of different reasons for that. And it's not just redistribution. There's a, there's a lot of other things that contribute to it that, uh, you know, you don't, even though something like universal basic income, uh, or, you know, universal health care or universal childcare, Mm -hmm. even though those are redistributive things that a lot of people can support, there's a lot of other things people can support that aren't necessarily redistributive like that, that would still help probably bring a lot more equality into the system. Yeah. I will say doing, doing what I, what I do as I I work for a private firm as a consultant, but we do public projects. So all our, all our funding, all our projects get paid through, through taxpayer money, their government programs funded by the city or the, or the state. Um, or even in the federal government, it kind of trickles down in a way. Um, but but what I've come to kind of realize is that when we say federal spending, and there's this kind of when you, when you hear spending, you hear yeah the federal money, the government's just throwing money places. But it's 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 and the projects cost you know x million dollars, x hundred thousand dollars, x trillion, whatever. It's not so much just like this is how much the project costs in a way, but it's also like how much, how much, uh, you know, millions of dollars the project creates mm-hmm. in the form of jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I'm one of the people that benefits from government spending because because my company gets gets projects. My partner talks about something similar. You know, it's like when you when the government funds environmental projects, people work in like that. It's environmental science, but it's really environmental compliance, right? Like it's a compliance industry, right? And and that's jobs. And when you shrink right. the Environmental Protection Agency, or when you if you shrink, you know, uh, housing programs or things that affect the urban planning industry, like that's jobs. 
you know, and they're jobs that are focused on improving people's lives and making the communities more efficient and more effective and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting though. There are a number of intersections of things that people think are relatively good economics and inequality fighting things. So for example, Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that generally economists think is good is migration, right? And people think about migration now with respect to like, I don't know, people coming from Central and Latin America or people coming from overseas into the US. But in economics, people generally think of migration more as how do people, what's mobility like? How do people move from place to place? Mm -hmm. Because if in this community there are jobs and there's more jobs than there are people who can fill them, and in this community there are more people than there are jobs, then you have a mismatch. And the country, Mm -hmm. the economy could have more output if you get the people over here to the jobs over there. And so how easy is it for people to move from the place where they don't have a job to the place where the job exists, right? Mm -hmm. And there's general acknowledgement that if people have a little bit more money in their pocket, it's easier to move to this other job. Or another example, the jobs could move to the place where the people are. Well, in some that's cases, what, technology yeah. can help with that. But what if it's like a manufacturing job, right? Mm-hmm. Or what if it's serving a particular community as a service job, right? What if there's a disparity in healthcare workers in a certain city, uh, mm-hmm. but the people who have the skills needed to serve the people with the health issues who live in like Wyoming mm-hmm. can't get to LA because they don't have any money, right? Maybe... I think that's an interesting reason. Why, that's one reason why it's maybe not fair to think of the freedom dividend, universal basic income, as a giveaway. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's like maybe it's a little stipend to try to help someone, you know, take care of the cost of moving to a place where there is a job. All of a sudden, right. the, for the country, it's a net benefit because all of a sudden that person's paying taxes. Right. That would be a way of like the the Milton Freeman a way of kind of, of of adding money to the global the the pool of money um as opposed to just government spending on a project um that creates all these different contractors and subcontractors and compliance a- a- arenas um this would be a, if you give everyone $1000 you could practically print that money or you know m- m- maybe it's m- maybe there would be similar benefits to spending money on a bullet train in the northeast corridor people don't have to fly as much maybe the net benefit to commerce and savings on some fuel transportation costs the cost of planes things like that maybe there's a net benefit to the economy right mm-hmm. um you know or i mean the the other you you uh universal basic income example is you work a job you don't you've got health care through your employer you've got this great idea for a company you want to try to start you don't have mm-hmm. any startup money and you can't lose your health insurance because you've got some health issue yeah. well if you've got universal basic income you can quit your job work on your startup and you've still got a little bit of support it's not going to make you rich by any means but you can get by while you work on your company mm-hmm. and because maybe you have access to you know health care independent of your employer with uh, Medicare or some sort of subsidy or, or whatever else, you don't have to worry about a health crisis. Your business takes off. All of a sudden, you're bringing, you're, you're hiring people. You're not only taking care of yourself, but you're making jobs for more people. You're adding to the economy because you had health care and a little bit of support 
when you were were unemployed and working on your startup, mm-hmm. you know, people are just worried. Does that mean your taxes are going to go up? I mean, may, maybe, but I, but I think I think that's the that's the thing. If your taxes go up, but you're doing better as a result, net the value right. of what you're getting is higher. You know, but it's a complicated thing, and it's a case in which sometimes the economics and the inequality things match up, mm-hmm. but then it becomes about messaging and and things like that. So it can it can be complicated. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the other and, sides of yeah. you know the. Benjamin Applebaum's book and some other books about economic issues, you have some cases in which economists have ideas that aren't politically uh, good, but we're going with what the economists say to our own detriment. Mm. In some cases, we have ideas that economists like, but that aren't politically viable to our detriment. Mm-hmm. Right, like well, like in, what's an example? Like of universal basic income is an example. So, of something that economists like universal basic income, but mm-hmm. politically it hasn't sure. had its time yet, and so there's both of the sides of this coin. Right. Yes. So another one that's economists, I think, like in specifically in terms of climate change that hasn't had its time politically is a carbon tax or cap economists and trade market. Love the carbon they tax love car- system. Carbon well, tax my system. my class, especially that, when yeah. the carbon tax proceeds just get put right back in people's pockets. Yeah, I, I took an, an energy policy class, um, which is somewhat the, the inspiration for the, for this podcast. Mm-hmm. I believe it was kind of like a support group of climate change warriors like myself. And nice. but our, our teacher was a, um, he's a he he introduced himself on the first day as I'm an economist, mm-hmm. and um, he was very much in you favor of a carbon tax. The economist, <laughs> boo! <laughs> and I, Get out of here. Yeah, he was very much in favor of carbon tax, cap and trade. And look, it's not the albeit solution, but I mean that's that would help a lot. Yeah, but it's that's, like if we end the fossil fuel subsidies and we tax carbon, that would that would do quite a bit. Absolutely. We still need you know federal uh, incentives for things like solar and wind, or even and, and we need stricter. Um, regulations and standards and other arenas, but uh, but a big piece of the puzzle is a carbon, a price on carbon. But it's funny because I think something like universal basic income would help make that something like that more viable. Wait, wait, hold, hold, hold this thought. Sure, hold sure, this thought sure. because um, I want to do a, I want to include youth universal basic income in a, in a segment that we're going to do right now, oh, okay. and we're going to simplify this for our listeners because I think we've gotten. Even pretty simpler wonky. than what we've already been talking I, about. <laughs> I, I, we're, do, we're doing this because you've you've lost me, uh, and I'm okay. going. <laughs> and what I'm going to do is, is I know you, you're 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 a policy wonk as I introduced you, and you're applying to different graduate programs now in public policy, and you know. Um, so I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just state a policy. Okay. And you're going to tell me hot seat. You're going to tell me how like whether you are in favor, against. Slightly in favor or slightly against. Okay. All right. Are and, you good for and that? No explanation why. Just just the just the ruling. Yes. Okay. I'm gonna, I might do a follow up question if I see fit. Feel free to follow up. All right. Universal basic income. I am in favor. Strongly in favor. I'm strongly in favor. Four out of four. Four out of four. Okay. Stars. Where four it, out of four. So little, four little Andrew Yang four, faces. <laughs> four. Four math. You like math. Four is strongly in favor. Three is slightly in favor. Two is slightly against. Okay. One is strongly against. So I'm a four strongly in four favor. Four universal basic income. Yes, sir. You like the freedom dividend, one thousand a month. I like freedom. Well, it just, I like dividends. How do I? How do we know that it won't just mean our rents raised by a thousand dollars a month? There's an economic concept called elasticity. 
and elasticity is how sensitive okay okay the, okay moving on Univ- <laughs> medicare for all basically different things respond to prices that's, that's, i don't care yeah <laughs> i got i got you i get it. medicare for all uh like a 3.5 okay you like yeah. medicare for all i like universal health care i yeah. like the idea of one body doing it I have a little bit of a problem with a government-run program like that. If there were, if, if we made a, um, an, a, a single nonprofit institution that mm-hmm. did the same thing as the government but wasn't the government, like a utility company almost, I would be four out of four. But I'm skeptical of, I think... Utility companies are not nonprofit. I don't know for sure. But I'm saying yeah. a nonprofit utility-like organization that received the government collected tax revenues made this nonprofit in charge of handling the healthcare thing. The utility companies are, them. are not nonprofit. So is That's it my question is utility like is there a company? precedent for an agency like that? Other countries. Non-profit. Other countries Other have countries nonprofits have that? that receive money from the government. Absolutely. That that administer Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I just I think when you've got the right people in charge of a government bureaucracy, everything's great. But in the wrong circumstances, things can get messed with. And so yeah. I think that it's it's actually a kind of an American principle, but that's just me personally. I, I'm 3.5 Medicare cool. for all, but all right, free college tuition for your first four years uh, for public institutions. Yeah, I'm in favor of it. Okay, for public institutions. For public institutions, okay. I don't want to pay for people to spend yeah. you know sixty five thousand sure. dollars to go to University of Miami in Florida, right? USC, whatever. But so my question is already like with a bachelor's degree they're all right okay let's just move on i think that's that's cool i think it has to do with those transitions again how much easier is it for someone to get the job that's available if they don't have to pay anything to go to college that's an efficiency thing yeah and it allows someone to to take classes and kind of find out what they really want to study more in some and if they want to pay for school they can go get a master's in some countries students not only get free college but they get paid a stipend to go to college because it's beneficial to their economy yeah right? i almost feel like i can't believe how like how expensive med school is where like you would think we need doctors it's unbelievable <laughs> like you would almost like shouldn't you pay people to study medicine <laughs> yeah, don't you want don't you want them to be doctors don't you want people like good people to be doctors what yeah. if there's people who can't afford i think med medical students, school who would be genius doctors i know i think i really think i think med students should be paid but a lot of their class should be like research that contributes to the field or at least like well. whatever, make it make it a rigorous process. Maybe you'll have more people applying to become doctors. Maybe make it a rigorous process. Just don't yeah. don't leave those people out to dry. I like know? how I like uh, I like how you're you're you know you're applying to public policy schools. You're very you're a serious guy, but you uh, you know universal basic income all in universal health care, pretty much all in with a with a not with a with a twist uh, free college tuition for public schools pretty much yeah we're, we're all in um carbon tax let's do let's do that I'm one very much pro carbon tax very much pro but carbon the tax. key part of it and i'd still be in favor of it without this but a key part of it is the proceeds get returned to american citizens they don't just go into the government's back yeah, pocket i got you it's the proceeds go right back into your pocket. So yeah, that so was the, you, there so was you a, don't have any. There's no net effect on you. Did you know that tax? there was a bipartisan carbon tax bill put on the floor um, last year at this time? There's an article about it up on Block Radius, by, written by Hank Felsman. You can read it today. Oh, Hank. 
And that was the exact plan. It was a carbon tax that would start at a certain at a certain price, um, and then it would it would grow over the years. So it's not like we're setting an extremely high bar a transition it, period. It's a transition period, but and also like the money goes back to the people in rebates. Yeah. All right. Cool. We're in. We're in. One that. thing that people have apparently found with political items is that when things get attention, they don't pass. But when things fly under the media radar and a politician doesn't have to be accountable to their constituents about it, meaning mm-hmm. like a constituent's not going to call them and be like, you asshole, how can you do this? Um, it's more likely to pass mm-hmm. if they agree with it. So if, if it had never gotten any media attention, maybe it would have passed if climate change weren't politicized like that. Welcome back to Climate Change Therapy. Thank you for being patient um, while we took a quick break. Um, I'm here with Alex Greer. Alex, I, I know in a moment I wanted to ask you about Davos and BlackRock and some of the bigger climate change news of this week. But also I, I wanted to take a step back and I've known you for a little while and I, I wanted to kind of go into some more stuff about 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 you while you're here. Um, cause BlackRock, these, our listeners can read about if they really wanted to, to know about, um, I still want to hear your, your views on it. So I'm going to ask you that in a little bit, but, but first, um, you talked earlier about your job at human rights watch, um, where they have a new division of, of climate change and, um, looking at, uh, victims of, uh, human rights violations fr- from the perspective of environmental activism, um, now you are kind of going through a, a trans- transitional phase in your life. You're you know, applying to public policy schools, law schools around the country, and um, your real name is Alex Greer. For any uh, <laughs> any um, admissions officers listening and uh, trying to anyone impressed, trying to cancel Mr. Greer here. That's not that's not what. We- Oh, okay, okay, fair enough. <laughs> I don't know. So whatever is he's enough. saying about universal basic income and, and uh, free college tuition. But um about to get canceled. Mr. Greer. Uh so so why the the change from um your current uh career at Human Rights Watch to uh to law and public policy? Um and and how do you envision the conversations about climate change changing as well? I think that's a really good question. Um, Let's start with the why, the, the transition, and go address the climate change second. Yeah. So why the career change and why now? So, I mean, for me, the uh, the financial crisis was really the, the watershed public event of my life. You know, I growing up, I had always been concerned with issues about poverty and inequality um but the 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 financial crisis just sort of threw a wrench in everything that happened everywhere you know it sort of exacerbated um a lot of you know the 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 situations of a lot of sensitive people and um there was no accountability for it Mm -hmm. and i had a huge issue with it i was really interested in a career in finance before that happened and That's why you first you pursued the masters in in accounting for accountability. 
Well, uh, it's certainly part of it. That's what yeah. that means, right? Accounting. Yeah. <laughs> and more, uh, maybe I've always thought of accounting as being mostly related to counting. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and keeping track of stuff. Gotcha. But I do think I learned some principles about accountability mm-hmm. as an accountant. And, right. Um, you learn about accountability on account of counting. Yeah. And, and I learned about accountability even further at Human Rights Watch about, okay. you know, when an abuse happens, why is justice important? What's the power of justice for, like, why, why is holding people accountable important? It's not necessarily important just for retribution. It's important for closure, moving on from something. Um, the fact that it's sort of um, it's a necessary thing, and I think mm-hmm. I think my interest in law and policy has a lot to do with that same accountability. Mm-hmm. It has to do with um, you know the financial financial crimes, financial inefficiencies. These are really esoteric things and things that a lot of people zone out about just because it's complicated or it's maybe for them, it's not that interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in it and I care about society. You know, I'm not looking to exploit it for my own benefit. And so maybe I can scratch my own personal itch on, you know, public service on these financial issues and, you know, do something for the public good. Mm-hmm. I think as you sort of allude to, to move from an organization that focuses on human rights issues, which is a pretty amazing, important, and maybe even noble thing mm-hmm. to be affiliated with that and to transition away from that into something else. Like there's a lot that's given up in that process. And I think that does weigh somewhat heavily on my heart as I think about this transition. Well, it, all, but it also makes a lot of sense. You've, you've been there about four or five, four or five years. Yeah. So you, you've been working for this, an, an agency that focuses on human rights violations, but yes. it doesn't really have the ability to, um, you know, lay down the law and, inf- and, and remedy those violations. You point out the violations, but you don't have uh, the, the power of in- enforcement. And so, over the over the years, you've seen all these all, all this corruption in the in, in the world that you've kind of been powerless about. But maybe you know, going to law school, becoming a lawyer. Here's something you can do about it. You can prosecute. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the the moments at Human Rights Watch that stick out to me the most are the moments where there's been an international prosecution. You know, that's mm-hmm. been successful. What's an example of, of a case uh, that an international prosecution that you have observed and kind of been inspired by? Well, the biggest case to me that I can think of is the case of the former Gambian dictator Yahya Jame, who um, you know was he was the dictator uh, there for a while, uh, torture, you know, killings, all sorts of other things. And for 25 years, a local activist worked with one of Human Rights Watch's uh, team, uh, a number of people, but one person in particular, to, you know, gather testimony from people who'd been affected, build a case, lobby different international institutions to get them to create, to like have a court for a trial. Mm -hmm. You know, they got a couple African countries to band together to 
create an international court. And they got this guy in court. And after 25 years, one of, one of his torture victims was the dictator. He uh, one of the of dictators. Gambia. So you of Gambia. One so of the, you helped he, prosecute or bring the case against the dictator of Gambia. Yeah, Human the Rights ruler. Watch did that absolutely with yeah. with someone who actually had been an accountant, a local like public servant in mm-hmm. there who had been tortured twenty five years ago. Was he the? He was the the former dictator. The former dictator. Former dictator. Yeah. And so, where is he, or, he now? What, like, what is? Oh, I think it might have been Chad. What's, yeah. what's happened with that dictator? He 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 was uh, he was convicted. Invicted. So is he in he was prison convicted. now? There's some there's some appeals, but but yeah, he he's expected to go to prison and will probably die in prison. Mm-hmm. And that's but that's accountability, you know. Right. Um, and that's how do you spell his name? Uh, y a. Wait, am I thinking of? I'm thinking of. I was thinking of Yahya Jame, who's who's I think someone who a different dictator who Human Rights Watch is currently pursuing. Okay. Um, the person I was thinking of, and this is a little embarrassing. Maybe we can change this in the editing process. I'm just joking. Yeah, Yahya is, uh, Jame is the is the is Gambian politician. Current Gambian dictator. I'm talking about the former dictator of Chad, Hissène Habré. Okay. H i s s e n e space h a b r e. Okay. He was the former dictator of Chad. He had fled to Senegal for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he was. I don't think we need to edit this out. It's a very human. No, it's fine. Error. Not, we all have the I'm human just, right to. I'm just correct ourselves, <laughs> and we corrected ourselves. So. Absolutely. No. Yeah. So so they're so they moved on from him, and now they're pursuing this other dictator, Yahya Jame. But because of the success of the prosecution of Hissen Habre, wow, uh, a couple of years ago, you know, thousands of victims had yeah. What justice. was his, his main thing? It was what was it, his the the crime against him? What were the violations? There were all sorts of different things. Yeah, you torture, said torture, crimes against humanity. I think there, there what were are, killings. What are crimes against humanity? Um, sounds like a card game. <laughs> it is a lot like the card game. No, I think there's there's just certain crimes that fit under that uh, title. You know, it's kind of like if someone were to say abuse of power for a politician is an issue. There's mm-hmm. a bunch of things. Well, that Alan Dershowitz would argue that abuse of power. Is, means nothing at all because it's too vague. Well, under certain circumstances, maybe. <laughs> but there's other people would argue there's certain things that which qualify. Is, or di- which is why people hate lawyers. But go on. You're going <laughs> to have a great time in law school. Absolutely. I think I'm going to feel great about myself and I'm always <laughs> going to be proud of my profession. Uh, no, I, I, in this case, they were successful in yeah. the things that they pursued him for. I mean, there were... I'd, just a lot of horrible things that when, you could read about. When you go into your new profession as a, as a prosecutor of, of financial crimes, you said the financial crisis Hopefully. was a great inspiration. Another thing you could do if you wanted to tie it into the greatest issue of our time um, is to prosecute some of these fossil fuel companies that kind of are withholding knowledge. Or like you said with the Teflon, like they knew, DuPont knew what they were doing. Um, so it doesn't just have to be... Um, corrupt people in terms of just um in terms of financial crimes like uh ponzi schemes or whatever but it could also be um companies that are selling products that they know to uh to to cause harm well at the end of the day i think what i'm interested in is accountability and Mm -hmm. enforcement is one mechanism of accountability another is you know oversight and accountability systems you know, and to your point, I mean, th- those are the things that make me interested in public policy yeah. and things like that. I think, you know, y- y- 
it maybe in some cases it can be useful for an industry group to be the watchdog, but mm-hmm. in a lot of cases it can also be like the fox watching the hen house, yeah. you know, and when DuPont can self-regulate their use of PFAS, you know, people get poisoned, communities get cancer right. and, you know, people are losing their livestock and things like that. And so I think those are things that I'm interested in, you know, mm. because I think the, it's it's naive to think that you can prosecute everyone. Right. It's very naive. But systems can be m- effective preventative mechanisms of a lot of issues. Mm-hmm. And when things escape through the sieve, you know, mm-hmm. then maybe you can uh, let loose some prosecutors on those people. You know, but there's yeah. there's a lot of there's issues that have been written about in books about the financial crisis, for example, about how you know, prosecutors have been handicapped by like the the defense industry, corporate defense industry, convincing the federal government to change their regulations on how prosecutions against corporations go, where um, it's essentially made more difficult for you to get the documents that you need in order to prosecute individuals and hold them accountable. Those are things that apply to the financial industry, but those are things that apply to the chemical industry or the oil and gas could, industry. Could, those are things that I care about too, could, and that's policy. Could you build a case against a company, um, let's say even like BlackRock, if they if it comes out that they knowingly invested in companies that were causing harm to the environment? It's hard to say, and I'm not a lawyer now. Is, is that the kind of case that could be built in, say, 10, 15 years. Well, one of the issues that I know my coworkers and colleagues encounter at Human Rights Watch is some things are really difficult to prove. Like this, this case against the dictator that you mentioned was built after he was out of power. So it's like, oh yeah. so, so I, I feel like the, the cases against fossil fuel companies or, or companies like DuPont, you know, you might, there might be prosecutors who do build a case, you know, after divestment, after... You 10 can, years, 15 years down the line. You can change the law to change the, uh, you know, the period, the, the window of opportunity you have to prosecute uh, after a crime has been committed. You could change the law to say, you know, this might not have been illegal at the time, but it was clearly negligent and actually we're going to enforce some repercussions against mm-hmm. you for it. Um, but, you know, at, at Human Rights Watch, they're very careful about the projects that they pick up because some things are sort of harder to pin down than others. One of the biggest Mm. challenges they have for climate change as a research topic is that accountability can be very diffuse. How do you make an individual person or an individual corporation accountable for climate change? And so having a legal system that supports accountability in ways that are fair to the victims of abuses, Mm -hmm. whether it be financial crimes or environmental and climate crimes or human rights crimes, but also fair to the prospective defendants in saying, well, okay, we know something went wrong. We can't really pin it to you, but we're going to stick it to you anyway. It may be in some cases you get the right person, but in some cases you might get the wrong person. That's Mm. not justice. You know, so how do you balance those things? It's a real challenge and it's a challenge for right. something as specific as human rights. Right. It's and also it even is, like is deception. Change. Let's say like, is, like, let's say like a fossil fuel company put out a study saying that these were the effects and it was, a, it was a complete sham, but is deception a human rights violation? 
I don't. Right, I don't, that's another thing. I don't know that, that it's a human rights violation. Exactly. But but it, I don't, and it's hard to say that it's illegal. But if that deception like leads to you know ruining the supply of drinking water, and drinking water is a human right. I think it's about being able to link the harm clearly to the action, mm -hmm. you know, and there's the question of if there's a deception that goes on, can you effectively link that deception to the harms that followed from it? If yes, maybe, maybe you have a case. If it's hard, it mm -hmm. might be tough, you yeah. know, but that's where proactive preventative accountability systems can be useful. Maybe enforcement yeah. isn't going to catch those things, but having an accountability system that prevents some things like that from happening to begin with. Right. You know, and that's the role of government. That's policy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about BlackRock for a second. Yeah. Um, recently, uh, BlackRock is the, is the biggest global investment management company in the world. They manage more assets than anyone else. Trillions of, worth like seven trillion dollars or something, something like that something like insane that giant private equity firm and they have huge influence um in the direction of global economy definitely an all-star company that people in the business world look up to and they've recently announced that they are going to start uh, divesting from um companies that um that that are for uh, fossil fuels big carbon footprint companies and they're going to start steering investment more towards environmentally sustainable uh, uh, companies that have plans for for increasing environmental sustainability are d d do I have that more or less do you want to put it in your, your well, own understanding I think that's kind of what the press release sounded like but I'm not sure that's exactly what they said and what mm -hmm. they're doing and I think that's where things get a little fishy and why I wanted to talk to you about it because yeah. because from my reading I can't remember the exact phrasing that they used but they said something like companies that pose a climate change or at risk from climate change or something like that and mm -hmm. the way the right. press release sounded and this was an announcement from their ceo in his annual letter to ceos around the globe or something like that mm -hmm. uh or to, to investors um he basically said climate change is creating risks that affect our investments and so we want to step out of cases where climate change is creating significant risks to our investments and potential profits. Now, they elevated things like, I think we're going to step back from coal because mm -hmm. coal is an industry that is starting to do more poorly as a result of competing energy sources and mm -hmm. government regulations and things like that. Coal, as a result, is an industry that's at risk from climate change sort of mm -hmm. right uh right. but that doesn't mean that they're stepping away from their you know oil and gas investments mm -hmm. you know i think this is to me it is an interesting case because on the one hand it's a case of what i would think of as greenwashing where a company takes something that's maybe climate adjacent mm -hmm. and wants to really pin the it's a pr thing i'm a climate champion yeah. thing to their chest but at the same time when a company like blackrock that gets a lot of attention from the business world says we're going to step away from this energy industry that's polluting even if they have purely profit motives when they are giving up on coal yeah that sends a signal. signal that sends a signal that's an interesting signal maybe yeah. it's not them being a in the like in the forefront of like they're not they're not sunshine you know, or whatever. Right. The, they're being reactive, but at least the fact that they're even being reactive is a... Yeah, the fact that they're reacting. 
Yeah, it might be later the, than the I want them to, yeah. but it's significant. It tells yeah. everyone else, maybe it's time you gave up too. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, re- like regardless, it's a death knell. Yeah, yeah. For coal. Like, re- yeah, and and regardless of of motive, it certainly it, it sends like this the signal uh, that that we want to to address climate change. But your reason to to be skeptical um, for the for the motive is because BlackRock had been facing a lot of pressure from um, I think protests and and climate activists had been protesting their policies because they they have. They have invested in fossil fuels so heavily, and BlackRock is part of the the reason, as with the let's say neoliberalism, that um, fossil fuels have, have prospered and run the country and run politics. Yeah, they're the they're the machine. You know, this is the company that, after the financial crisis, went in and bought all the empty houses, and said we can hold them. We can hold them through the financial crisis until people want them again. And then all of a sudden we've got all this property that we bought for, you know, dimes on the dollar and we can sell it for a huge profit. This is not your, you know, do-gooder company. This is a company that's ruthlessly, Mm -hmm. you know, pursuing their bottom line. But when a company that's that dedicated to their profits says, I don't think we can find secure profits in coal, you know, that's that's an important signal that the transition is happening, right? And yeah. we've already got and and listen, I I I don't want to suggest that I'm, you know, dancing on, you know, the the funeral mound of the coal industry at the expense of people who just who work in that industry just to make a dollar. Yeah. You know, like I think that's a travesty. And I think that we need to pour resources in their communities to make sure they have other opportunities. Mm-hmm. But the coal industry itself, right? I'm I don't want them I don't want them doing what they're doing. And of I course, think there's yeah. reason to celebrate as we're struggling to combat climate change as best we can. Yep. And you especially know, there's reason to celebrate there. Yeah. And especially we talked at the beginning of this program about about Kenya industrializing yes. and places like like India where they're digging for more coal, which which you went last summer. And if we have, if we have time, we can talk a little bit about that. Or China still uses a ton of coal. China still uses so, but but the, also especially these countries that are really starting to transition, that are even before where China is is now, um, that are transitioning to where they want to get at, at where everyone should have access to electricity um, and heat. Um, by BlackRock saying that they are going to steer their investment towards non-fossil fuel related companies. Or non-coal related it kind of, it companies. Does, it does kind of give hope that um, industrialization in India, in Kenya, won't take the same destruct, destructive shape and form that it took in America. And I, I, you know, I think there's an opportunity for countries like the United States to play a part in mm-hmm. pushing those other countries in that direction. You know, I mean, yeah. you look at China's Belt and Road Initiative, you know, there's some sinister aspects of it that I'd be more than happy to talk about. But on the face of it, they're investing in the infrastructure of other countries that they want to be trading partners with, you know. And uh, and China maybe is a little bit more transactional than the United States aims to be. It's not just trade relationships, but, you know, maybe more of a relationship relationship the United States tries to have with the countries that it invests in. But what if the U.S. were investing in some of these other countries and trying to help 
promote greener methods of uh, approaches to infrastructure development to say, we're not going to let what happened to us happen to you. We're going to make you better than we were as we try to fix our own selves. You know, that's a, that's a partnership. You know, that's yeah. And that go, but that goes back to um, the political feasibility of policies. Like if we say we're going to build a high speed electric rail, you know, across uh, sub-Saharan Africa, people are going to be like, well, what about, you know, San Francisco to LA? Yeah, how about we fix... <laughs> how, about, how about we have a fixed rail in America? How about we fix public transportation in America Detroit? America first. <laughs> which yeah. has very poorly functioning. The people mover. Nobody likes the people mover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, we have huge infrastructure issues here. Yeah. That's quite obvious. Yeah, but I... I mean, the scale of enormous wealth is difficult to process. You know, there's a... I remember on Radio Lab. They talked once about how as we age, we learn different degrees of scale. They said like to a child, how many pennies do you have? And there were five pennies and the kid said one, two, 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 two. Because they couldn't conceive of it. Like two was the biggest number they could think of at that that age. You can visualize five in your head. You can visualize 10. Maybe you can kind of visualize 40 or 50. But the second we get up to like 3,000, I can't visualize 3000 much less 3 trillion yeah. or 30 trillion but the reality is right, this conversation is up in my wheelhouse but the reality is the wealth in the United States and in the western world is enough to invest in our own countries and invest in other countries especially when the investment in other countries is going to put them in a position to be able to trade with us and increase our mutual wealth even further so uh-huh. i think there's opportunity provided we're willing to invest and invest doesn't mean handout. Invest means we're we're planting a seed for the future, mm-hmm. right? Uh, with green infrastructure here, with green infrastructure there, mm-hmm. right? Because it's 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 the same. Yeah, but, same but world. we have to we have to change the the business model, the thinking that you know we're going to build a a rail line in Africa. Um, we're you know the economists will want to know where's that reflected in our GDP. Right. As you were saying. Right. But that's not short term. Look at it. Like it would like the economist would say, do that project if, um, you know, it's going to be on loan to, uh, to Africa and then you get ownership of that railroad and then you, well, that's kind of what China does. That's the Belt and Road thing. It's, we're going to, we're going to help you build this project, but make the agreement financially unsustainable so that you default and then we repossess it. Yeah. But, but also to be, a little fair to China. It's still a good deal because even if, so here, here, hold on here. Well, it's, uh, you're right. You're right. You're shaking your well, head. You're a good, right. A good deal but, for l- whom? But, but let me just exp- kind of explain how, how, how we see this. Cause there's a lot of corruption and embezzlement so in here, a lot of these projects. Here's the deal. It is kind of, so here's the deal. It's like China, essentially they get to build a rail line in Africa, um, and manage it and operate it. But the rail line still exists in Africa. So Africa benefits by having a rail line in their country. And China benefits by owning and managing uh, the rail line. Um, well, you remember... So that's, you remember that's kind of the concept. When we learned about I'm not saying industri- they industrial America yeah. back in the day. Mm-hmm. And they would have corporate housing that all the factory workers would live in. And the co- and the corporation right. had their own money that they paid the employers. That that wasn't yeah. dollars. That was like Pullman, Illinois, four yeah. bucks. 
Yeah. And then you could spend it at the local store that they owned. Right. And you could spend your special corporate dollars at their court, like ownership of your own stuff. That's a part of self-determination. Right. And yeah. so how, and I think it's not just about, is there any benefit? It's how much of the benefits should we really have for the railroad in our own country? Mm-hmm. Right. And so, and, and I think the, the belt and road projects are often greased into approval with bribes of foreign leaders and, uh, you know, embezzlement and corruption from the projects, you mm-hmm. know, so it's, it's complicated. Um, but I think your point still stands that it is possible to find some degree of mutual benefit with investment in other countries. Maybe, maybe we can do it with a little less exploitation mm-hmm. than China does. Although asking America sometimes to do things with a little less exploitation can be right. a challenge. And that, that's we can at least to aspire to it. That's the, the, the issue with, with American America first is like we are right now we're letting kind of China throw the Chinese model of business China onto Africa the new mercantilists. as opposed to like if we came to Africa with a competing vision that was more environmentally sustainable holistic. or yeah, holistic. There you go. Um, I, it's so complicated because this whole, also this whole notion of like it is, it is colonialist. Absolutely. So it's, it's a, but it's a hard problem, but it's like, if we don't do it, China will. Absolutely. And if not them, then someone else will get in and do it. You know, it's, it's complicated for sure. For sure. Yeah. So the, the, the alternative to colonialism is not to like leave the cultures and countries be the alternative is you allow another country to exert their influence on that country. Yeah, I mean, I think ideally it would be mutually beneficial collaboration, but maybe that's idealistic. I've never been a government bureaucrat trying to negotiate these things. I'm sure it's very difficult, but, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm a citizen. I'm represented by those people. That's what I want, and I want for the good of those people, for inequality purposes and lifestyle purposes, and I want for the good of the environment, for Mm -hmm. my future and theirs. Getting... Back to BlackRock. For, yeah. For one more one more point, and then I want to steer to, towards something else that happened in Davos, um, the World Economic Forum. But at BlackRock, so this interview, they talked about two kinds of risk. The first is physical risk, which is like increased flooding of assets. So they're, they're not going to invest in, say, you said, we, we talked about the example of a real estate company that's building in Miami along the sure. waterfront or something like that. Maybe not a safe investment when they're going to be underwater. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. very soon and then there they said uh the, the social risk um where there's there's transition uh pressure and this is kind of like the risk that is is dependent on government public policy um you just, like for example divesting from from coal because that's uh is one um, because there might be more restrictions on it so they could invest in a coal plant now when coal gets um gets bolstered by subsidies but then all let's say these subsidies end and now they're investing in in something uh and then those subsidies go to like solar and wind now they're investing in this kind of more now antiquated uh product yeah i mean so so this is i think this is a case really of like of like social kind of protests and and 
public opinion that pressures the politicians is that's now affecting the global financial markets. It's a really good example of how these things are all connected. Well, I, in business school, you learn about the, the normative approaches to decision-making and it's, you create a cost model, right? And you say, what are the income streams going to be into the future? You have some ways of tying those up based on some discounts into like a total number. This is what this project is worth in today dollars. Is it a net positive number? Let's go for it. Is it a net negative number? Let's steer away from it. And you have to do that in different scenarios. If this happens, it's going to look like this. If that happens, it's going to look like that. And so you do, you, you look at your different plans for the future. You look at different probabilities of different events and you get up with a, you end up with a number that says whether it's a good idea or not. And when there's more risk involved, when there's more variability, when there's more uncertainty, you, there's more risk of not making a profit. Mm-hmm. And in those ways, social movements that create a little more uncertainty where they're like, I don't know if the government's going to change laws. I don't know if the divestment pressure is going to be significant. I don't know if there's going to be consumer groups that are going to effectively get people to stop buying that thing. You know, the, the, this is a weird example, but the milk industry is furious about almond milk and soy milk and all these other alternatives because it's eaten into their profits, right? But uh-huh. a lot of people maybe do that for lactose reasons, but a lot of people don't drink milk as much for environmental reasons because cows produce yeah. it, you know? And that's injected uncertainty and risk into those industries. And now companies like BlackRock don't mm-hmm. want to invest in them. I think that's what's interesting about splitting this this risk into physical risk and social risk because by divesting from fossil fuels, investing in environmentally sustainable uh, companies or that do however they phrased it in their press release or whatever, it it's kind of a hedge. So, for example, let's say the the with the physical risk is flooding. That's obvious enough. The social risk, political risk. Let's say like you're investing in, in you put all these investments in environmentally conscious areas that are you know blah blah. blah. Um, no, no, sorry. So let let's for example, let's say you don't. Let's say they didn't do this, mm-hmm. right? Then the risk is uh, they have an increased risk of their assets getting harmed um, by flooding. Sure. But they have a, let's say they, they, they were right about the social risk. So like if they, if they um, stay the way they are and they were right about the social risk um, that governments aren't putting pressure on, on for, for climate change regulations, that will, let's say, increase the sea level rise because it increases warming and that increases the physical risk. Yes. So that's kind of like a lose-lose in a way. Yeah. But now what they're doing is if they are um, investing in environmentally conscious uh, areas, what they're doing is they are not investing in, um, you know, pl- places are in floodplains, say, that are as susceptible to climate shocks. And so they're mitigating the risk with with this new policy for physical risk. And they're also they're directing um, by by taking the stand that they they stand, they kind of bring the agenda of the government towards their side in a way. Sure. So like they kind of steer the conversation. If if all of a sudden BlackRock is saying, "Look, climate change is freaking real," and we out of everybody have 
have reason to to hope that it's not real because we have all these investments in fossil fuels. Right. If BlackRock says it's real, then the government, they have to recognize it. And then they kind of, um, they validate BlackRock's decision to invest in the socially, in the in, um, environmentally sustainable companies. I mean, the military has been saying the same thing for a long time. And so I think when you have the military industry and the financial industry both saying, this isn't about my heart. This is about doing our jobs. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, I think that's significant. And I, yeah, I think it was telling that the other thing that happened in Davos that I want to talk about is like, we kind of know that the public enemy number one of, of in the environment is, is the, the president of the United States who's rolled back, you know, what's like hundreds of, you know, Obama era uh, regulations. Um, He's not been a friend to Greenpeace. He's not been a friend to Greenpeace, uh, Donald Trump. He's called climate change a Chinese hoax. He's pulled out of the Paris Agreement. We're the only country other than Syria to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And we're good friends with them. Nicaragua, I guess. But um, yeah, so he's he's been an environmental disaster. I mean, I've said if he on this program, if he should be impeached for anything, it's it's the environmental genocide that he's been wrecking. Um, this the threat he's, he poses and the the confidence he instills in other leaders of other countries like Australia um, and and in England to kind of be very uh, hands off in addressing climate change. But at, at Davos, um, Jane Goodall, the uh, the the science biologist most known for her work with chimpanzees, um, she was talking about a. Um, one trillion trees, this new initiative to plant one trillion trees. And, um, and Donald Trump came out in support of it. He was like, Oh yeah. I'm, I was like, I'm all for one trillion trees. This is a great idea. Everyone loves trees. And so, so like there are these articles, it's like trees, like might be the only like bipartisan thing that we can all agree on. Like we all think planting trees is a, is a good idea, but it's just kind of funny to, to think about Trump in the context of BlackRock and how BlackRock, these, what you think about as the swamp, you know, well, not the swamp, but it's like, as we think about like the, not the deep state, but the deep private sector in a way. It's oh like yeah. BlackRock is the deep private Whatever sector. Whatever we like, need to do to make a profit. Yeah. BlackRock is like the private, like, uh, yeah. Buying up the houses that people defaulted on their loans from in the financial crisis. BlackRock is such a perfect game to hold on to them until everybody wants to buy them back. Yeah. They're the black, they're the deep state of the private sector, but now that they are going on to like, you know what? Climate change is like real and we're going to have all our policies like reflect that. All of a sudden Trump's going to be like like is he going to say still say it's a hoax? I mean, he has on the whole business community. Is, maybe I mean, it, he has political motivations, you know. But, but I think what, it's not coincidental that he said, "You know what, trees? Okay, we can plant them." He didn't say. He didn't say we don't need to plant trees. We need to cut them down because we need a we need fuel. He didn't say that. Yeah, I mean, the listen. I, I like as we like we talked about. There's there's reasons with the Black Rock thing, just as an example, to be skeptical of their motivations. It's it's money. There's reasons to celebrate. It's maybe a death knell for coal. But the thing that makes me upset about it, and this is maybe a little on the heavier side, is that 
BlackRock wants to squeeze every last dollar out of their investments. So what does it mean when they're getting out? It means that climate change has been here. It's not we can still prevent physical risk from happening. Mm-hmm. It's physical risk is here and we need to get out of it. I yeah. was talking with I was I was talking with my partner recently and you know climate change has been was going on when we were kids. Yeah. But the the effects hadn't manifested quite in the same way then as it has now. We might be the last generation that has some sense of what normal weather is like. Right. Yeah, climate change is here. All this stuff is happening. Fires, floods, hurricanes, all of that stuff. Companies making decisions based on, you know, physical risk from the environment. That means we're already in the middle of it. It's not, I think we still need to do everything we can to prevent things from being even further exacerbated. But, right. but it's, it's about, it's about learning to live with climate change uh, more than it is about, you know, can we do something to prevent it? Mm-hmm. I, th- I, I really in my heart, like, I think, I hope that planting a trillion trees can suck enough carbon out of the atmosphere to have an effect. And I have put my money on it. There was a, there was a big YouTube campaign from some YouTubers who I guess the kids are into that I found out about where they were like, we want to plant. I think they said they made it 20 million trees or something mm-hmm. with the Arbor Day Foundation where you can donate a dollar and they'll plant a tree for a dollar. I donated like a hundred or like two hundred dollars. I was like, I want to be a part of this. Like, I want to plant some trees. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's sequester some carbon, right? I've, I'll, I'll put more money on it. I believe in that, um, and I like to imagine that we can pull carbon out of the atmosphere and slow some of this stuff down. But, um, but man, I've been depressed in the winter when my birthday is. Yeah. Every time it rains, I'm like, man, this should be snow. Yeah. You know, like every single time it's been, it's been consistently 40 degrees this winter, this winter yeah. in the greater New York city area. I went for a hike the other couple weeks ago out in the Wissahickon and I was just in a sweater, like just a, you know, a, a pretty thin sweater. You could all there were no leaves on the tree because it was winter, but you could see all you could see all the way down mid January, all the way down through the trees, all the way down to the river where there's geese. There's geese. They're looking for food. They're like the geese are are thinking, is this? Am I in Bogota? Is this Colombia? Absolutely. But they're they're confused. You said the humpback whales up the Hudson. That's not because the Hudson's getting cleaner. I'm sorry. (laughs) I hate to break it to you. (laughs) Right. The just like the geese are not in the Wissahickon because there's all of a sudden an abundance of fish. Right, right. Although geese eat grass. The animals are confused. Yeah, and I'm confused. It's disorienting. Yeah. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me sad. So you said that we've known about climate change for a long time. I think the, the Brundtland Commission was 1987. That was, that was like a main thing where they kind of talked about the importance of sustainability. But I, j- I just pulled up this from, so, uh, from 2014. This article says... Uh, more than half of all industrial CO2 pollution in the, in the world has been emitted since 1988. That's the year we were born. It's the year we were born. So that, that's in 
26 years. I mean, our lifetime in one generation could be considered the first 26 years of our life could alone. Be, that that's half of all emissions. Yeah, our lifetime. Our lifetime. We could be. We could be literally the generation of climate acceleration. Yeah, you know, we are our experience on earth has been observing the transition Mm -hmm. right and and unlike our parents who have observed the transition we're going to be watching it for the next 40 50 60 years you know we're going to be telling our grandkids about snow on new year's day Mm -hmm. and they're going to be like tell me what the snow was like on new year's day grandpa and we're going to be like, I can hardly remember it. You know that the year we were born, the, the world population was, uh, what do you think it was? 1.7 billion. No, the, the year we were born, 88. Trillion. trillion. I don't know what, how the scale that the we're on. To, today, today, it's, like it's, it's uh, 7.8 7? billion. Jesus. So, so maybe, maybe it was like four then? Today we are fifty six percent urban. Um, we are at seven point eight billion people. How many was it in eighty eight? Eighty eight. We were at five point one billion, forty two percent urban. Yeah, wild. Um, uh, how? What do you think about so nineteen fifty one? Oh, that was probably more like three. Or one point something. 2.5. 2.5. So my uh, my dad was born in 1952. My dad was born in 51. 1952, it was 2.6 billion. And today it's 7.8 billion. I mean, the thing is, each of them only contributed two kids. <laughs> yeah, man. At the... Um, in 1804, our parents contributed replacement level. This is interesting. In 1804, in 1804, pre that's let's say that's pre-industrial times. 1804. 1804. That's before we started 25 burning years coal after on a America scale. was invented. Yeah, this was like after Aaron Burr shot Alexander Hamilton. Or R.I.P. It's kind of still too. A soon. billion, a billion people in the world in 1804. So in 150 years, 200 years. We've added six billion people. We've increased from one billion to almost eight billion. Eightfold. Yeah, we've just it's just exploded. It's unbelievable. Yeah. But I can't I can't help but feel sad about like we like we're the beginning of the end of normal weather. Like people talk about In two hundred years. What, like, there's young children yeah. now. It's twenty twenty, right? There are children who were born who are graduating high school who don't know 9-11. They've never lived without the security state and going through the TSA, look at you naked body scanners and whatever else, right? Mm -hmm. But they'll also never have known what normal weather is like. Dude, so our good friend friend of the podcast. They read about birds. They're not going to know birds. The birds are dying. They're going to read about animals in their book. They're not going to exist anymore. I I think about that a lot. Like if if I have kids... I'll have to explain to him that or her that elephants used to like roam free in the wild, like things like that, that I worry about. The sick thing is, can you imagine raising a kid in a world where there's no wild elephants? Let's imagine you being the amazing parent that you will be 
want to expose your child to all of the wonder that the world has to offer. In order to do that, you'll need to fly, which is the most climate inten- carbon intensive mode of transportation at the moment. And so in a way, it's we're, we, we might be incentivized in wanting to pull, suck as much of the marrow out of life as possible. We may be personally incentivized to, to help the world in going out in its own place of glory. Right. Yes. During the scientific revolution. So say from 1500 to 1700. Yeah. Roughly. Right. From 1500 to 1700, the globe population increased from 450 million to 610 million. It's so modest. Four fifty, yeah, four fifty to six ten million during the scientific revolution. We've gained in the last minute, in the last, uh, let's say, you know, in the last, um, in the last hundred years, we've gained seven billion 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 people. One, I mean, that's, I mean, that kind of says it all. One billion to eight billion, yeah, in in two hundred years, um. It's kind of nuts. It's wild. You know, and, and uh, I think you know, the things that Allie talks about are like... Six nineteen hundred. it's 7.4 You said people. half of those people are urban. Where yeah. are cities located? Right, on coasts, the coasts. On the coasts, right? Yeah. There's sitting targets in concrete, you know, cells. Yeah. Waiting for the hurricane to come. Yeah, you know, or they're in Chicago. Will have the last laugh, or they're in um, mountainous areas where they have extreme temperatures. It gets extremely hot during the day, right. extremely cold at night. Right. Um, they rely on if you look at where a lot of civilization has uh, settled in from the beginning, it's at the foot of massive mountain ranges because you get the the fresh water comes from the snow melt, like the. Um, like I mean, the true the 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 cradle of of modern civilization in a way, or ancient civilization, whatever you call, want to call it, not prehistoric man, but man, is um, the Himalayas, and to the east it's China, and to the west you had India, and that's because all the snow melt comes down, forms the the rivers, mm-hmm. um, the Yangtze, right, um, um, the one in India, it's escaping my mind, um, but. Now with climate change, you're just gonna the the, the glaciers at the top of the you're mountains. About the Ganges, are the you? Ganges, yeah, the gla- yeah, sorry, the the the, uh, the glaciers at the top of the mountains are gonna gonna. It's There's not gonna be any melt. The the snow's gonna be gone. Absolutely, it's not gonna be water on the top of those mountains. They're gonna be like freaking pyramids. Yeah, yeah. It's wild. It just makes me, it makes me sad. I think just from a, I know, I know we, you know, you're talking a lot about climate science, right? But, um, from, uh, from like an emotional point of view, right? Yeah. From, uh, um, like a romantic point of view. Like I was, uh, like, what are your, some of your good memories in nature that you would want your, to kind of this romantic thread? I, I think this is what you're, where you're getting at so yeah. i don't want to be interrupting you no no i don't mind at all um, but but what are some of your like memories as as a kid that you, uh in about nature that you would want your own kids to have i i mean i i was born in december and i i was always had school break as a kid and so i really liked the winter i identified a lot with it uh and 
like a blizzard was the most exciting time ever because you could put on your coat and your snow pants and you were invulnerable uh-huh. and just go out in this wild world where the cars yeah. couldn't run. You're yeah. just a kid in your boots. Inner and you, tube and down Mayhew yeah, Court. Yeah, inner tube down the street. Down down the the street. street <laughs> you know, you're like wind is hurtling snow past your face and you're just trying to hike up the hill to your friend's place. <laughs> you know, you're going sledding. Yeah. You have a snowball fight. Friends mongers, you have a steaming hot mug of hot chocolate. Yeah, or you, you're tired walking up the hill. So you just sit down in the side of the road in a snowbank. <laughs> and you can literally form a chair because there's so much snow there. You yeah. know, like that, those are, those are, were amazing moments of adventure and exploration and really connection. This is sappy, but with, like with, connection with the, with the world and with the elements, you know, like I live in a house with air conditioning. Yeah. Like water comes out of my faucet. I felt like my most human building igloos and digging through tunnels. Exactly. You know, you're, you're, it's hands on, you're out and you're in the elements, you're doing your thing, you know, and what, what are the opportunities for that in the future? Yeah. It's going to be, it's tough without snow, you know, and, um, you know, and you, you think about the beauty of fall walking through the woods, you know, or playing in a leaf pile, you know, now you can't, those leaf piles are all filled with chemicals. You can't do that anymore. Well, chemicals or some of the trees are being killed by, you know, uh, um, invasive insects from other countries. Leaf or, piles are, are a fascinating thing. Can I just, can we just stay on leaf piles? Please for do. A I love leaf piles. So leaves, the, the trees shed the leaves because the leaves are good for the soil, which gives the soil nutrients to help the leaves grow. But we've we've constantly in the suburbs, we've raked away the leaves, which replenish the soil because we want to we want to show off our lawns. But then we worry, like, why the grass isn't growing well in the lawns? Well, it's because, like, we've raked away the um, the leaves that replenish the soil. I call it the gardener's gambit. Right, I'm gonna. You're gonna pay me, and then to we have to use. The and then we use herbicides. We use ke- we use chemicals to help the grass. Or it's like we just rake the leaves, the, and then we th- where we put the leaves. We just throw them away. The gardener's gambit is. I'm gonna. You're gonna pay me to rake the leaves, and then you're gonna pay me to spread fertilizer to make sure the tree continues to exist. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so that was just an aside on on leaves. Oh yeah, but uh, I I think like. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, t- I mean, just being able to go outside and run around instead, like not in the future, are they going to have to worry about, are we, am I going to have to worry about my children's he- suffering from heat stroke? Right. You know, is it going to be too hot? You know, or, or, an, yeah, a that's nice, what a lot of people say that, that heat is, is really the thing to look out for. A it's nice, gentle summer heat. rain. Mm-hmm. Is that going to happen or is it all going to be, dry sunny day and then vicious thunderstorm droughts and and monsoons yeah droughts and monsoons flash floods you know uh trees toppling over onto people's roofs Mm -hmm. you know things like that fires and yeah yeah things like that you know i think i think the stability of even from suburbia relationship with the elements is um everything felt comfortable and now i'm not afraid but I can, the, the fact that I'm noticing that the world feels more naturally erratic, it definitely mm-hmm. puts a shiver down my spine. And I think people feel like, seeing movies like, I, I like Robert Downey Jr., nothing mm-hmm. against him, but the new Dr. Doolittle movie coming out. Or movies that make a spectacle out of the natural world 
that no longer exists outside, Mm -hmm. but apparently we can tell everybody that everything's okay from a movie where not only can you talk to animals, but he's pals with a giraffe. He's pals with an elephant. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, everyone sees a movie like that. And the message they get is the world outside is fine. Yeah. But it's not, Yeah, it's not. And I'm, I step outside and I know that my relationship with the real world is in flux and is in jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, What's one of the most uh, beautiful places you've visited naturally? Uh, I'm not saying the most beautiful. I'm not, I don't want to put you on the spot with that, but just like name a few beautiful places. Yeah, absolutely. That, like, when you think of nature and you just think of like, God damn, is this, is this nice? What do you think of? Well, there's, uh, three places that come immediately to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is, uh, the Rocky mountains and I've been to Rocky mountain national park as well as Banff and Jasper national parks in, wow. uh, in Canada. Um, and, and it's gorgeous, breathtaking mountains, you know, blue lakes. Uh, I climbed on, a, I walked on a glacier in, uh, in Banff, um, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, just really dramatic and breathtaking, like really taking my breath away. Uh, that's what breathtaking means. Uh, (laughs) just really like, I I don't know. You, you walk above the Alpine line, the smell of the, of the, of the spruce or pine or, uh, you know, it's just really beautiful in, uh, Iceland. Mm -hmm. I experienced the Northern lights and that was incredible. Yeah. Uh, I've never felt, I've never felt, closer to the cosmos mm-hmm. and being around the Northern lights. The, you know, the, the Aurora is the sun shooting essentially like magnetic waves off of the earth's atmosphere. Uh, and it doesn't just sort of like appear and, and move. It's like, or at least when I saw it, it was as if it was as if a curtain like a show curtain on, on stage, like your high school auditorium, like a curtain was slowly materializing made of light in the sky and twinkling across the sky. So outside in the middle of the night, watch it for a couple of hours. Was it, it, was it completely quiet? It was, we were absolutely alone in the field. The the lights flashing. It's not like lightning. Oh no, it's It's not lightning. It's just, it's completely quiet, just twinkling into existence, these curtains of light. What is it physically that it is that, that because the light is reflecting off from the light from the sun is reflecting off something. So what is the physical matter? It's not sunlight. It's the, it's has to do with the collision of, I think like the magnetic fields from the sun colliding with the earth's atmosphere and magnetic fields. And I think it has to, maybe, maybe it's a chemical reaction in the atmosphere. Maybe it's something photonic. Maybe there's gotta be some kind of matter. I'm sure we could look it up. Yeah. But it's, it's something like that. Um, it's, is amazing. And then, and then, uh, I went to Maui a couple years ago and Maui was wild. It's just mountains and lush, humid, uh, you know, green, you yeah. just turn off the road and all of a sudden there's like a waterfall and a pool and there's no one there. And the water is like perfect swimming temperature. And it's like, it's a tiny little jungle Island with like all sorts of different biomes in it. And it was gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of amazing things out there to see. And it's interesting because I, you know, I have, there's a lot more of the world for me to see, but I've traveled a fair amount when I really think about it. Mm-hmm. I definitely feel some degree 
of guilt for all the air travel I've yeah. taken. You know, and I know that one person doesn't make a difference on their own with mm-hmm. the climate, but you know, I mean, if been, you didn't take the seat in that plane, someone else would. Presumably, yeah, presumably. presumably. But I, I don't think that but you makes do me, contribute to the demand of the take. It doesn't make me feel better. Yeah, you know, when I think about like when I look through old photos of the places that I've been, and I'm really glad for those memories and those experiences. You know, mm-hmm. but um, but there's this, you know whatever color you would use for the opposite of a silver lining, you Mm -hmm. know, this, this blood red angry lining that just makes me feel like, ah, like I, there was, there was a cost to that beyond the cost of the plane ticket. Okay. This gives me a great idea for another segment. We're going to play, we're going to play this segment. Uh, and then I think that's, it'll be a good way to conclude on, but this segment's going to be called, Again, on a scale of one to four. One to four. How guilty do you feel about about this activity? So four is you feel the most guilty. One yeah. is you feel not guilty at all. Um, actually, you know what? Let's do a one to ten. One to ten. Ten, ten is the most guilty you feel, and, okay. and one is the least guilty you can feel. Yeah. Let's keep it simple. Rapid fire. Who likes scales of one to four? We have ten fingers for crying out loud. Absolutely. Ten toes. Ten well, for the reason. I have four. But, um, I was, uh, I have a few, we have a few things I still want to talk to you about, but I want to end with this segment. How guilty does this activity make you feel? So green, uh, you are occupying a seat on a otherwise sold out flight, um, f- from, uh, New York to Florida to go to your friend's bachelor's party. Mm, mm. How do I feel? Scale of that? one to 10. I don't, I want to hear no, uh, at, at most one sentence of an explanation. I think I feel an eight. Even though someone else would be on that flight, like I know when I'm on that flight and when I'm enjoying the party and whatever else that like this was the most inefficient way for me to make this trip. And the trip only exists because other people aren't thinking about how carbon intensive that kind of uh, celebration is. How about a flight from New York to Boston? Uh... That's probably more like a nine or about a, a flight? ten because I could have easily taken the train or a bus. Yeah, yeah. see where this is going? Yeah. How about a flight from New York to Beijing to check out the Great Wall of China? I, I think I'm right back to an eight. But even though Florida... But I'm still is, going. Florida I'm... is shorter than... I guess, but you couldn't take the bus to Florida. Because, because I, yeah, I don't have any alternatives <laughs> and like... It's not that it's not that I should feel guiltier for yeah. Beijing. It's that I shouldn't feel less guilty for going to Sarasota. Okay. How about uh, great eating a cheeseburger? I'd say like a like a six six and a half. But I should probably feel more guilt. Okay. But I feel more guilt from a steak. Isn't okay. that funny? Uh, Ground fair. beef makes me feel less guilty than unground beef. <laughs> Why do you think that is? I don't know. Maybe hamburgers are just so n- commonplace and they're cheaper. And mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. Hmm. It's probably easier to get a high quality, like grass fed, less like uh, industrial farming steak than it might be to get a hamburger like that. But I don't know. Uh-huh. In And agriculture is probably more carbon intensive than, a, than airfare, right? Um, 
I, yeah, I don't know about it on per capita, but, but agriculture is a huge industry. So well, and it's tough because yeah, there are probably yeah, it's more, hard, it's more hard to people kind of compare eating beef. Them. Than I think there more might be people may, taking flights. More emissions are created by agriculture than than flying. But, but maybe per capita, it's flying hard to say. is more carbon intensive. Per yeah, capita. I, th- I think that's about the most carbon intensive activity that you can flying can do. Yes, but yeah. eating beef is probably one of the most. Um, uh, uh, carbon-intensive agricultural activities that exist. Oh, yeah. There's right. nothing more carbon-intensive. How about um, recording this podcast? It takes electricity. You know, electricity, you burn coal. How guilty do you feel on a scale of 1 to 10? Pro- probably, probably like a 3. A 3? Yeah. I don't feel very guilty about it. I think maybe in the future we'll learn more about where, you know, the, the the place where we're where we're recording actually being more carbon intensive than we thought, mm-hmm. and you know the conversation dredges up a lot of guilt, even if the even if the recording isn't guilt inducing in of itself. Mm-hmm. How about um, heating up a pot of boiling water to make some tea <laughs> <laughs> on a gas stove? Probably about the same amount of guilt. Do you use a gas stove? I do have a gas stove. You motherfucker. I know, but but is electric more gas more carbon intensive or no? Less electric is better. Than... But what I do it when I boil up a pot of hot water, what I've been doing is, I've been filling it into a, a hot water thermos to keep the water hot. Because sometimes if you just use a gas kettle, um, you heat up more water than you need, and then you end up having to you know you like waste. It takes more gas to, you know, more water. So I preserve the hot water, which I feel better about. But why? Why don't? Well, I just, I, it just I means actually, I drink more tea. I actually don't drink tea. Okay, <laughs> but couldn't you microwave it? Um, you could, but microwave also takes up energy. Yeah, yeah, but you could fill the mug exactly the amount of tea you want. Yes. So you there's could. no waste. Yeah, microwaves are something else, though, that I worry about because of radiation and freaking getting cancer, staring at the microwave and shit. I've heard that they're pretty low levels of radiation. I think I think you get more radiation from being out in the sun than you do from your cell phone or a microwave. Well, ask those same sources in about 15 years what they still say. This is That was a wrong term. Do you want to ask me? ask me how guilty I feel about different activities? How guilty do you feel... Or policies, where I stand on certain policies. How guilty do you feel ordering yourself a book on Amazon Prime? Amazon is pretty bad. As good as the Amazon rainforest is for being a a carbon sink, um, Amazon, the corporation, is an engine for emissions. Um Ordering a book online. Well, today I, I bought a. You watched me. I bought a used a used book by hand, and I walked it home. So I felt good about that. Um, ordering a book on Amazon, I would say I feel about a five. Five. So you feel neither guilty nor absolved of guilt. You just sort of don't think about it too much. No, I feel guilty. I say a five is guilty. Is <laughs> five guilty? Yeah. It's from one to ten. With one being not guilty at all. Oh, so is three a I, little bit guilty, or is five is three is a little bit guilty? Oh, so if you're a one, if you're a two, you're feeling a little bit of guilt. I would say zero is no guilt. 
<laughs> or one. Zero or one. Wait, I don't know. I mean, this probably messed up my entire right, scale. Well, I thought five was no guilt, and then like three was like, I actually feel proud of this. Oh, that's a better scale then. Okay, so I, I guess I feel like a 6.5. 6.5? Yeah. Okay. And how guilty do you the, feel? This scale really should be, it should be a 10 to negative 10 scale. It probably. <laughs> just or let's do, a, let's do a 5 to negative 5 scale. Um, so the scale's all relative. How, how guilty do I feel about, just start asking me rapid fire on a scale of 5 to negative 5. Being in a newly so, constructed building. Well, that buying, a book, buying a book on Amazon, I'm a 1.5. Being in a new, like enjoying yourself in a new building that isn't lead certified. Um, I would say that's a one. Eating a kiwi fruit that was shipped from the other side of the world. That would probably be a 1.5. Um, taking a road trip to Canada in the car. Um, that would probably be a th- two. Hanging out with a friend who <laughs> flew to Philadelphia to hang out with you from a different location? Um, I think negative one. Negative one. Yeah, I don't like this scale. I think we should go back to one one through ten. I think listeners <laughs> are going to have a really easy time following I think they're having a great time. Our uh, measurements uh, of guilt. On this segment. All right, can you just ask me, uh, um, just mention certain policies and ask me if I'm in favor or against? Moving people from sensitive locations on the coasts inland or like buying their properties from them and encouraging them to move inland away from risky areas. Um, I am in favor, slightly in favor, slightly in favor. I think like the, uh, that should, there should be an option. There shouldn't be any like takings. It shouldn't be uh, and there no, no like eminent domain, but you should like, you know, incentivize it, offer, you know, through things like um, how you price flood insurance, alternatives, different programs should be in place to you know, acknowledge that this is a problem that these people didn't cause, but they're they're victims of it to some degree of, of not knowing, um, lack of information, misleading real estate people. You can't just blame people for living on the coast. But yeah, there should be some government um, programs that can kind of incentivize maybe like within the same school district if there are areas or within the same county, probably that's more realistic, like within the same county to manage a transition to higher ground as an option. But it shouldn't be like a forced thing. Government programs that allow for the prosecution of executives who made decisions that knowingly contributed to exacerbating climate change to a, to a notable degree. I don't know that you, I would say not, not in favor. I don't know how that you, that you can hold those executives accountable. I think the, I think the priority for government has to be creating, um, intervening in such a way that current executives don't, um, contribute to climate change. Um, currently you can't like kind of punish people retroactively because, um, because as a government, you didn't do your job of of establishing the proper rules. I think the government is as is as at fault as any as any uh, company now. Because the government has the ability to end subsidies. The government writes the rules. So who is it's not it shouldn't be the government's role to kind of you know play the blame game. 
So I'm against. Investing in nuclear energy. I am in favor. In favor. Yeah, I'm slightly in favor. I think we should um, increase nuclear energy, but we also don't want to um, kind of advertise it as a solution for every country to just on a mass scale invest in nuclear because that just increases the likelihood of a catastrophe. And I think there should be a lot of compliance and there should be a lot of oversight and a lot of care into where you um, put nuclear plants and how you construct them and, and operate them. Investing substantial public dollars in techno futurist uh, research into carbon sequestration machines and can, can, weather control. Can you please rephrase the question in a simpler manner? Some people think that uh, you could make like a carbon vacuum. And so investing significant... Oh, like geoengineering, carbon sequestration, taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Geoengineering and, and like weather control technology and things like that, like investing significant public resources in those technologies. Significant public... I'm slightly in favor of investing some research because we it might, as a last resort, like it's important to, to look at. And again, if, if it's not us, it's going to be China. You know, like it's kind of like the nuclear weapon um, idea. If we didn't invest in, if we didn't develop nuclear weapons, you know, Russia would have, or someone else would have at some point. Um, you know, once you have the idea there, um, you know, people will people will figure out how to how to build the nuclear weapons. Um, so that's how I feel about carbon sequestration and geoengineering. We should kind of but it, it shouldn't be significant. Like it, we should be careful so that we don't create like this arms race towards like how you can control the environment um, like that. We should really, the approach should be sustainability and just stop admitting carbon because even if you could sequester the carbon you admit, you still will continue these, the, the, the practices that you know are polluting our, our rivers and, um, you know, killing off the the wildlife and whatnot and putting chemicals into into the world. Did you know that in some places ocean acidification has gotten significant enough in w- such that they find crabs with like shells that are in the process of dissolving? Um, that's crazy. That's not, I mean, that's unsurprising, but I mean, yeah, I, just, I mean, I don't know anything about like, we've, let's we, like imagine, we've like lost the coral reefs. Let's imagine that wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. But the coral reefs is purely a temperature thing. Right. Okay. Uh, but you know, this is the amount of carbon dioxide in parts of the ocean is high enough that it's acidic and is deconstructing, mm-hmm. you know, parts of, you know, animal carcasses or whatever, you know, like the carapace yeah. of a crab. If, if, if the trillion trees project, yeah, Jane Goodall's monkey business yeah. is successful, is successful, right? And yeah. maybe it pulls carbon in the atmosphere or someone successfully makes one of these vacuums. Yeah. Does the carbon dioxide come out of the ocean? Do the crabs get their shells back? Like, how does that work? You mean wait what do you mean if there's certain degree of carbon so that so the ocean absorbs some of the ambient carbon dioxide in the atmosphere 
Yes. As there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, more carbon dioxide gets pulled into the water, and that's ocean acidification, and it's just a more inhospitable environment for a lot of marine life, right? Mm-hmm. If we're able to successfully, big if, pull carbon out of the atmosphere, does the carbon dioxide leave the ocean and go back into the atmosphere? Or does it get, or does it stay in the ocean, right? Well, like, well we would want to only pull out the carbon to get it back to the the amount of carbon in the atmosphere that would support a fully shelled crab. But what I'm saying is, what if, what if A... The we took out too much carbon doesn't leave the ocean just because you pull stuff out of the atmosphere, right? What if it's in the ocean for good or B what if you're trying to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, but you need to pull enough out such that the ocean isn't replacing it with the carbon dioxide it had pulled. Yeah. I don't think I, I'm not a science rate. scientist. So I, so I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to, how to answer this. But I, I do just know feel that bad for the crabs. Could you imagine your skin dissolving off your body? That would suck. Yeah, no, no. Luckily, I, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. That. You remember the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark? Um, I remember the end of the Oakland Raiders and the beginning of the Las Vegas Raiders. Rich Gannon, uh, John Gruden, John Gruden. No, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where yeah, they Indiana released Jones. the Ark of the Covenant, and that, you know glasses wearing nazi guy's face gets melted off and that's how it feels for some of the crabs yeah no it's uh climate change is a bummer but that's why it's important that we talk about it uh, alex thanks for coming on the program today uh, do you have any final words maybe some words of hope uh what do you have looking that you're looking forward to uh coming up in the next uh, few weeks or months plug, uh, plug in activity that's uh you know that's maybe happened in your life. That's a good thing, or that you see happening in the, in the in the world at large. Let's just spend time with friends and family, and uh, maybe talk a little bit more about climate change. It feels cathartic, yeah, to talk about it a little bit, and not in a politicized way. Yeah, maybe a little bit more, just like a how are you feeling? I know you mentioned you're going to to Paris uh, in a couple in a few weeks. Yeah. Um. So when you're there. They do. A, they have a um, the whole, whole different energy portfolio. Just kind of do a little read up on what's going on, um, how France is, is is approaching it with the, differently. Yeah, yeah. Maybe um, I'll check it out. Report back, me, uh, and then you'll come back on the show. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Cool. Uh, oh, bonsoir. Bonsoir is good night. I say goodbye. Adieu. 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 We bid you listeners adieu. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Happy February. Um, wishing you all a happy Groundhog Day tomorrow. And go Vikings in the Super Bowl. So, talk to you soon.